Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you, one that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. And welcome to another episode of Dead City Drive-In, the only podcast that uses V8 juice to bring all the boys to the yard. I'm Brandon Windish. And I'm Chris Holcomb. And we are the heads of programming in this year, Dead City. And in another one of these goddamned episodes, decreed by a bunch of assholes... our bosses, the drive-in slave drivers, we have been tasked once again to program a specially themed double feature for the undead sheep, suckers, and rubes outside our projection room door. Okay, hey, 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 little buddy, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't help but notice you sound a little distressed there. Oh, you think? Yeah, and I want to know if you're okay. No, I'm pretty fucking far from okay. I'm cracking up! Two years of this bullshit! Okay, well, now, if you want to get technical, it hasn't really been a full two years of episodes. Maybe planning the show... It's bigger than the goddamn show, Brandon! Uh, Look, I'm sorry I flew off the handle like that. I'm just done. You know? Stick a fork in me. I can't take it anymore. Hey, 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 man. What what, what is it? What's, What's bothering you? Everything! The pandemic, work, politics, the world, the the, the crumbling state of this drive-in theater, our quote-unquote bosses. Everything has gotten so complicated inside and outside of my life, and... I just need to change. Oh, well, that, that, that's okay. You know, you know something? There are a lot of people out there, Chris, that feel like this. There's no shame in being overwhelmed by how whack the world is today. And, and I'm really glad to hear that you recognize a change must be made. So, uh, what sort of change did you have in mind? Um, there's this, well, I, I don't know if you can call it a philosophy, but for lack of a better term, this philosophy i've been toying with off and on for almost 40 years okay well that's cool what does this uh, philosophy entail well at its core you have to visualize the simplest manifestation of any problem in your life and recognize that there are only two paths you can take to solve it okay interesting and, and where okay does this philosophy come from it started in the holy land of israel but they used to have an office in la Wait, an office in L.A.? What's this philosophy called? WWCFD. WWCFD? Yeah, WWCFD. What would Canon Films do? And what would Canon Films do, Chris? It's very simple. Every problem can be solved by taking one of two paths. Okay, so every problem in life yeah, yeah, can it, be solved yeah, by gratuitous violence mm-hmm. or breakdancing. Um, right, look, I've, I've put a lot of serious thought into this, and the path seems pretty clear to me. It does? Yeah. 
So from here on out, I've decided to confront my problems in the purest form of WWCFD. So you're you're what? You're going to choose between pop and locking your problems away? Uh-huh. Or you're going to throw shuriken at them? No, 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 no. Way, way better. I'm going to shoot my problems with a bazooka. What would canon films do? Dude, I think you're on to something. Uh, and I think we can start by programming a double feature of 80s canon films. And I have just the guy to help us out. You got Chuck Norris to guest program? Yeah, kinda. If you, re- you replace roundhouse kicks with score composition and added charm and charisma. Look, I'm pumped, dude. Let's get right into it, okay? I don't, I don't want to put my foot into Jeff Goldblum's teleportation device and also have a vagina somehow sneak into the device and then turn it on and merge the foot with the vagina, you know? Huh? I don't want a pussyfoot around here. Let's get this explodathon on the road. Our guest programmer is a composer and songwriter whose work straight up refuses to fit inside a specific box. Since scoring the 2007 Sundance thriller The Signal, he's composed over 35 feature films and documentaries. The Night House for Searchlight Pictures, David Bruckner's The Ritual, the werewolf comedy The Wolf of Snow Hollow, the Criterion selected documentary Stuffed, and so many others. In the last year alone, we've seen the release of five films, including The Beta Test and Jacob Gentry's Broadcast Signal Intrusion, all drenched in the haunting, undeniable sound that makes his music so unique. He's collaborated with Moog and the Asheville Symphony Orchestra. His album, The Highway Collection, is on constant rotation here in Dead City. Today's guest programmer is Ben Lovett. Thank you. Hey guys! Hey very, man! Very nice. I also just quickly before I forget, want to say I caught your V8 reference, and I know uh, where that's coming from, <laughs> and I think we're going to circle back to that later. And I'm very excited. Yes, so I we know are too. Where that came from? Yeah, you're excited about the V8 juice, but I'm excited about the hair. Oh boy! Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> lots of hair. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's on the back, and you can see it Her from suit. the front. All right, we'll 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 get yeah. there. We'll get there. <laughs> Damn! We'll come back to the V8. Your scores have a distinct sound. Um, listening to broadcast signal intrusion, yeah. um, I knew within the, the the first two or three notes that this was you. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Like, so, so many scores... Um, and especially genre scores, like, lately, too, have, have like, a retro synthy sound. And mm-hmm. I, personally, I'm a fan of that. Uh, but hearing what you do is really, really refreshing to me, especially after... 35 scores um i guess the question <laughs> the question is how do you find a how do you find a balance between creating something new and repeating yourself well that's a good question i i guess it's just because i you know um i'm not that good at it <laughs> like i'm not like i'm not good enough to have perfected any one way that i keep returning to <laughs> with confidence so i'm I, i'm always trying to try something different or um i I don't know i i get uncomfortable trying to do the same thing over because half the time i don't know what i did right Mm. in the first place like like each one of them is its own little sort of microcosm experience and 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 i come out of the other side of that and i'm more comfortable trying something new 
and being in a place where I'm not exactly sure how it's going to turn out or, or where it's going to go other than trying to kind of have this prescriptive idea of like, okay, we want to do another one like this. <laughs> because yeah. every one of them seems to be the end result of so many like kind of a sum is more than whole of whole is more than the sum of its parts. Okay. Okay. And so I don't always know how to sort of reverse engineer what was great about one again. And so because each time is a new story and I, I always think of all of it in terms of, I'm just trying to like help communicate the story. I'm not really approaching it from a, well, I want to do this kind of music or like, I want to, I'd like to do a jazz score now or whatever. It just like on broadcast, it was just kind of like, it seemed like it wanted this kind of throwback noirish, you know, like uh, like an old timey detective, uh, you know, dark, smoky alley kind of. Yeah, um, yeah. I'd never done that in a movie before, you know. Yeah. Uh, so what's crazy is you say you've never done a score like that before, but I, like I said, I, like when I listen to the music, I swear to God, dude, I, like I know within the first few notes. Uh, just like with the Wolf of Snow Hollow, um, that I recognized almost instantly the uh, you know Ben Lovett sound. I think that's great because I can't hear that. I think other people have mentioned that, and and I try to like. I've always said like on the songwriter side of my thing is just like I'm like I I don't I don't really have a sound. I just have songs. You know, it's just like I make things independent of feeling like I have a certain genre that like the music sort of lives in mm-hmm. and it takes on the personality of either the musicians I might be recording a particular song with or the director that I'm working with and the kind of music they like. And I think that's why I keep coming back to film music so much because it's so highly collaborative that um, like in particular broadcast signal intrusion, I've made like nine films with Jacob Gentry now you yeah. know, over Damn. a span of like 25 years. So, you know, each one of those is sort of like, an extension of his own sort of creative vision for the film. And it's kind of a collaboration in that way. And um, I don't know, I guess that's why I keep coming back is I, you know, I like telling stories and I like trying to sort of see like in the case of this kind of going, well, I haven't done a trumpet driven, slightly jazz influenced seventies <laughs> meets the thirties film noir. I think what would that turn out like, you know? Let's go down that road. Sure. Um, well, you know, we mentioned that your album, The Highway Collection, is on constant rotation here. And, dude, that really, that's no lie. Um, our mutual friend, uh, Yoshi, mm-hmm. uh, he played me the Masters before the album was finished. And even then, I was so blown away by what you'd accomplished. Oh, so um, I think I was in, actually, New York at the time. And I just remember falling in love with the music and the stories uh, that the songs mm-hmm. told. And, dude, it was like an instant classic for me. That's great. Yeah. But it's the it's the ten year anniversary of that. Holy record, shit, ten years? Wow. Tell me you're doing like a vinyl release. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess this can be like a you heard it here first, because we are. Yes! Uh, it'll be very limited. Yes! It'll be very limited, but it's never been on vinyl before. And for the ten year anniversary we're doing a limited run special Dude. edition. Yes. Know, like cool packaging, inverted uh-huh. version of the art artwork and everything. It's it's pretty neat. Oh, dude, that's awesome. Um, yeah. you, I have the uh, the record, the uh, the fierce single. Oh, cool. The, no, the the, the yeah. record version. Oh wow, the little seven inch. Yeah, with uh, oh, it was uh, uh, the fear and the B side was like a moving train. Yes, yes, dude. Um, mm-hmm. which were the first two songs. Those oh, were the wow. first two songs done for that project. Yeah, I actually I remember. Um, during the shooting of the video for the fear, mm-hmm. uh, another mutual friend of ours, uh, Scott Poitras, came to town for a commercial 
uh, I was directing, and he was like fresh off the plane. He was like, "Yep, just got done shooting a music video for uh, for Love It last night. Yeah, uh, well, all fucking night. Well, it's crazy because <laughs> the majority of it was all done in one night because yeah. it's all like one shot. But it took forever to finish just because that night was absolute chaos. You know, mm-hmm. it's still one of the as as ambitious as some of those. You know, because there's one of those for every song. There's like a crazy no budget ambitious masterpiece thing for for every song. And that one is probably one of the craziest ones. There's like 400 extras in that one. Yeah. And trying to wrangle hundreds of strangers with like a few of your movie buddies is just absolute recipe (laughs) for crazy. Yeah. And it was. Yeah. It's a miracle we got something out of that. Um, I also, you know, I wanted to mention real quick the uh, music video that Dan Bush directed. Uh, Ghosts of Old Highways, which is just another phenomenally um, impressive feat. And dude, you are a fucking badass in that video. <laughs> uh, it's uh, like I, I think it's a really, really great wordless performance. I uh, I've always said like I never had any uh, I never had any ambition for that, but the, all the directors kind of convinced me that I should be in each one, and that would be the through line that sort of connected them all. Yeah, so, well, I mean, your, you know, your performance is really strong. I mean, you yeah. seem completely at ease in front of the camera. Well, that's a credit to, in that one in particular, Dan Bush. And, you know, in each of these, it's the it's really a credit to the director hmm. to take a person that's not an actor. But, you know, if if I'm being tasked with, like, being different versions of me, and there's another creative person that can figure out a way to, like, get in my head and activate those switches. I mean, that's really credit to, to Dan and that whole experience. I mean, Ghostfold Highways, I mean, again, I, I look back and I'm like, how did we pull that off? I mean, we had no money. We had, like, a crew of people hiking equipment through the mountains for oh, six days ouch. to shoot this, like, Civil War. It's it's nuts that's looking crazy. back. It's like, what were we thinking? <laughs> how did we pull that off? It's amazing. Um. You know, the uh, the other thing that's awesome about that video is it almost completely um, jettisons the actual song and it becomes like a, a self-contained short film that is um, straight up scored, but like scored with the, you know, like the instrumental, um, like the song is still there, but it's a completely new experience. Right. Yeah. Uh, why, why did you do it that way? Well, it's it seemed like it was something I had never done or really seen done, mm-hmm. and it seemed to reinforce like that sort of the cyclical nature of the way the story operates, which you know this. Yeah, of, well, it kind um, of it reminded me of like an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Y- yes, yeah, right. Yeah. And so it was kind of like the song inspired the script, which gave us a thing to shoot the movie, and then I created new music for the movie that was in the style of the original song. So it was the same kind of like infinite loop. And I felt like it, um, I've since done that on a couple of other ones. Um, and I thought it was a kind of an interesting way of um, bridging like those two worlds between like my work as a part time song and dance man and my work as a part time film composer. It's sort of a way to put them both and, and have them be relevant to one another. I, I want to say that like your work is really defined um i don't don't know maybe not like defined as the as the ultimate word but like i think it's defined very much as intensively collaborative um that's just a reoccurring theme that i see in a lot of what you do do you think that's fair does that does that sound accurate 100 percent. so tell me and i and i think that that's the that's the joy of it for me that's the best part 
so what yeah what is it tell me what it is about the collaboration that you feel like means so much to the work that you do well i guess i like the the, it can be kind of a lonely occupation, like scoring and, and doing music. Really, There's a lot of like sitting in a room alone, you know. And like I, I, I guess because I did not grow up um, studying music in a formal capacity, I didn't grow up taking lessons or, or, you know, I didn't go to music school. I didn't have any kind of formal training. There was never like a relationship of like just me sitting around making music or playing alone, right? I got into music by like learning punk rock chords and getting in a band. And <laughs> so it band, was just, yeah. yeah. And so it was, it's just, here's it was, three chords, go start a band. Right. Yeah. <laughs> three chords and just like a bad attitude, you know, just something to yeah. say was, was kind of the entry point. And, um, I guess it just feels like I'm constantly learning and I'm constantly, like I'm more interested in like a kind of, tie it back to what I was saying before, I'm interested in what I don't know might happen by way of sort of colliding with other people and having an idea sort of pinball around a bunch of different creative brains than just trying to sort of make some kind of artistic statement about like, well, look what I've done, you know, here. I, I just There's not a whole lot of motivation for me to kind of like prove anything by trying sure. to kind of, you know, I, so I'm just kind of curious as to what might happen when, um, you know, I combine, you know, idea X with person Y and Z, you know. Did Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, is it a unique process every project, though? I mean, do you have a, a similar kind of set of things that you like to go through kind of to warm up to it? Do you start with the script or do you sit down and talk with the director about what's the feel of the piece, you know, how it should be? Or, you know, how, how does your process begin there? Well, that usually depends on at what point of the production I've come on board okay. so um i've absolutely had gigs and all composer working composers have where you you don't even you're completely unaware of the project until you get a call and they're you know they've been working on it for a year and they're they've got an edit and they've got it temp score and you know or they've already hired and fired a composer so those are very different situations to come into than like the night house where i'm sent a script a year before they're ever even on set and we're having conversations casually for a long time and the idea can gestate. And then once it's greenlit, I'm like the first person hired and I'm writing music before they're ever even shooting. And so in a process like that, we're talking about story and we're talking about this stuff and broadcast was like that. We I read the script and we talked about it for a long time before they ever shot. And on Nighthouse, you know, I'm writing and making things and sending things to Bruckner on set. There's a lot of downtime on set. There's a lot of standing around and waiting while things get shuffled around. So he's able to listen to things and headphones and just kind of get instinctual feel for like, you know, man, I don't know what you what track 35 is, but, you know, something about something in there feels like the movie. And he's kind of getting some of those impressions in real time while they're making the movie. So all that stuff is like when the when the ideas can kind of flow back and forth. Those are the most fun and the most creative and kind of the most dynamic ones. Um, and I feel like those are the ones that turn out where the music feels the most integrated into just the fabric of the story itself. Because it's it's kind of come up alongside the creation of the rest of it and is everything's informing one another. On other ones, though, you kind of come on and you're just sort of looking at the shape of it all and just trying to as quickly as possible get inside the head of like, well, what are we trying to do, accomplish here? What's the story? What do we need it to feel like? And, um, you know, the job is really, in both cases, it's 
you're an interpreter. You know, you're interpreting the script, you're interpreting the actor's performances, you're interpreting the director's sort of vision for it and what kind of feeling they're going for. And you're kind of trying to just find a somewhere in the middle of all that where you can kind of have an angle to kind of see all those things at once. And then, you know, for me, like, I have to sort of understand it emotionally or whatever, narratively, to know what to do. So I typically have to find, um, I guess, something that I relate to, like, just in some adjacent way that the characters, even in just kind of fun, campy stuff, I have to get a sense of, like, what the core of the emotional experience of the characters are to kind of know how to fill that in and and kind of mine my own experience and my own interpretations of what those things feel like. I I like hearing you say that because I think one of the ways that we always um, approach our... (laughs) We we try not to, like, criticize film or any movies around here. We all know how hard it is to make a movie and and the amount of work that's involved in it, but we always... Our, our enjoyment I, I think I'm okay speaking for you on this but I feel like our enjoyment we'll see just say what you say and okay, then I'll correct right. you later uh, thank right? you <laughs> <laughs> but I think like our enjoyment um, oftentimes kind of comes from a similar place of getting our head around it like if you if you know that the filmmaker's intent is not to basically be like fuck you you know then you can enter, you know be entertained by the movie that much more so like if you're even if it's a, a, like a admittedly bad movie like Ghoulies 2 you know you can you <laughs> it always can, comes back to Ghoulies 2 it always comes back man. to Ghoulies 2 but like you can you can kind of go well look you know they're not <laughs> trying to make a bad movie they're not making a cynical film um, they're they're trying to just have fun in Italy and make a movie together and once you can kind of like wrap your head around like the filmmaker's intent it usually allows you to um, be able to well, once you can get into that headspace you're able to kind of yeah it's your m- point of entry point of entry thank you it's curation yeah. i guess that's what we kind of yeah. try to do here anyway but um yeah nobody sets out to make a bad movie n- never but it's hard so, to well, make a good one sometimes you know? people do i feel so every once in a while well, there's something i'm like <laughs> it's their tax shelter sure. the tax shelter they didn't give a shit <laughs> you can smell it a mile away have you guys ever watched defcon 5 4 defcon 4 like that's a perfect example of like the movie's called Defcon Four and they're like okay here Defcon Four like the ultimate and it's like that's the least but Def- it's got the best cover box art but man. but Defcon Four is like when everything's okay yeah <laughs> so, you know so you literally you go like these people uh, they didn't know what the fuck they were idiots. talking about it's, no they just are like the audience doesn't give a shit so we don't give a shit. You know, I don't know. That's that's when I tend to not like a movie, and that's still one of the most painful experiences I've ever had watching a movie. Is yeah. DefCon Four? Um, what? <laughs> how do we get? How do we get there? Okay, I have a question, Ben. Um, I don't know. T- sure. Like, did you do something? Did you collaborate with Wu Tang Clan? <laughs> uh, no, but I um, I had the absolute pleasure of spending a night in the studio with Raekwon the chef recording vocals. Um, And that was an unforgettable experience for many reasons. Um, Not the least of which was uh, I sat down as 20-something years old to engineer. He was coming in to put some verses down, some bars on the track we were working on. And he just like all of a sudden in my periphery, right in front of my face comes 
the largest blunt I've ever seen. Like, like, a, like, a, like a Cuban cigar. Like yes. a, a Churchill blunt. A Churchill blunt. Yes. And just comes and I was like, oh, no, 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 thanks. I'm like, you know, I got an engineer. I got to run this session. That right. ain't nothing to fuck with. You roll, yeah. You might not. You might have heard that Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. Well, it's true. And so he was just like, you roll, you roll with me, you roll with me. You got, you're going to be on my level. You got to be on my level. So I had to sit there and and manage both those situations at once, which was, you know, running the session. And like a guy like that to work with a guy like that is kind of like shooting hoops with an NBA player, like yeah. casually, like like he's such a professional. And he's so good at what he does that the speed and the ease that he moves at is your your I'm just was constantly trying to keep pace yeah. with how fast he his brain and how fast he worked but it was amazing experience to do that especially when everything is like kind of happening in slow motion too I imagine <laughs> <laughs> oh yes oh yes <laughs> oh my god so hey this is a vague question ben but is there um is there any kind of score that you were like absolutely dying to try mm well, I've not done a space movie, and I mean, you've done some sci-fi grew up stuff. In the, done some sci-fi stuff, done some time travel stuff, but I've never done a space movie. And as like a kid that grew up in the eighties, I think I'd like to go to space mm-hmm. in my movie career <laughs> at least once. So, yes, you know, yes. anybody got a space movie going? Holler at your boy. <laughs> Um, so the last thing I will say before we kind of start to transition into what what we're here to talk about today is, um, do you think that th- this era, this you said as a child of the '80s, like uh, that some of these '80s movies have had a subconscious effect on the music that you create? I think so. I I, I don't know how it couldn't. I suppose yeah. I don't know in what specific way, but I other than maybe. Um, you know, I grew up in an era where some of the ones that still stand up as some of the great film scores of, you know, that came out of that era when we were like, you know, I was born in 78. So mm-hmm. like in that, you know, 80 to 90, I mean, that there were so many, so many scores that I and they were so pronounced and they left such a distinct impression on and kind of changed the way films were made in terms of the relationship with the score, I, I guess it it got into my system and I and I interpreted them in such a way that didn't fully mature or materialize until later, you know? Yeah. Um, just in terms of, like, the relationships that I made with those movies were so fundamentally about my relationship with the music in them, even though I didn't know that then. I realized it later. But but I'm but in looking back, I think that, that it... It did. I I just don't know that it it did musically in any particular way because I was simply learning about watching movies by way of having these scores have such a profound effect on how it helped tell the story. Sure. More than it did sort of instruct me in any musical sense about that. It's just the way the music and the picture worked together and the way the, the role of the score in those movies, I think, probably did. And well, you can hum all those themes, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very hummable. Well, I think as we get into it, we'll start to talk about more, and we'll kind of get into a little bit more of some of the stuff that you've done and uh, and maybe in some weird kind of comparisons to some of these movies. But let's let's get into some of this, all right, man. this stuff. Like, get into it. And I will say, it, 
very much uh, your output is impressively insane and uh, like we said in the last five or last year alone five films and you've got a few more that are in the works right now um and that's very similar to the guys behind the films that we're talking about today very much like mr menachem gullen and yoram globus themselves oh yeah an impressively insane output of films and we are talking about 80s canon films today Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and this was no... And what a great logo. Like, they're the logo and the logo oh, stinger, the music. Oh, it's killer. It's killer. Yeah. It's so good. And I, I will tell you, I've never been quite sure what it is. Is it a C and an A? I, that's a good guess. I don't know either. I really don't know what it backwards is. Backwards E. I, yeah, it's I don't strange. know. I don't know. I'm not sure, but it's pretty badass. And uh, but you knew you were in for a treat whenever you saw that at the beginning of a film. Uh, <laughs> you're definitely in for some kind of of thing that goes in you. That's for sure. <laughs> Whether it's a treat or not, I don't know. Um, but they did an impressive array of films, um, and we have two films that we have to program in the '80s canon. Canon. <laughs> <laughs> that works out well. So, Chris, and we have three that we've brought to the table. Chris, yes. what movie have you picked? Well, I have brought a personal favorite of mine. It is 1986's The Delta Force. This is a hijack! And The enemy doesn't care who they hurt. <laughs> Not how young. Daddy! How innocent. How helpless. Collect all passports. Why? But Strangers. They're making a mistake. United by the threat of death. There's only two of them! And there's so many of us! Find the courage. You take one of us, you better take us all. To defy their captors. I won't do it! It's a new age of terror that requires a new breed of warrior. One minute to showtime. We're members of Delta Force and we're here to take you home. America's elite anti-terrorist commandos. Committed to destroy the enemies of freedom. Because the stakes are more than pride. Sleep tight, sucker. More than honor. More than justice. American, I want to negotiate. Do you hear me, American? Loud and clear. Because they're fighting to save American lives. The Delta Force, starring Chuck Norris and Lee Marvin. America's new heroes. The Delta Force. Directed by Menachem Golan. Written by James Bruner and Menachem Golan. Starring Chuck Norris, Lee Marvin, Martin Balsam, <sighs> Joey Bishop, Robert Forster, Lainey Kazan, George Kennedy, Susan Strasberg, Bo Svensson, Robert Vaughn, Shelley Winters, and Steve James. The late, great Steve James. Yeah, and I look, I'm just going to say, like, that is such an impressive cast list. Hell yeah, it's an all-star cast. I mean, I was my I so I had never seen this movie until we had we watched it for our the screenings. And seriously? seriously? You had never seen this movie? Never seen it. I I'm look, full disclosure. I hadn't either. No? Oh, wow. Okay. I am I had not seen it either. I am not a Chuck Norris fan and I then that, that's perfectly fine. That has a big reason why I haven't never seen the movie. But when I You're saw wrong, this, it's okay. <laughs> when I saw this cast list of the opening credits, 
I was like, oh, holy shit. What am I in for? I was like seeing the Poseidon Adventure or any of those movies. Well, it is. It is totally like, you know, one of those Irwin Allen disaster picks from the 1970s. Fucking Joey Bishop? Exactly. What? Like what? Lee, uh, Lee Marvin. Lee yeah. Marvin. Lee Marvin is, it's his last Lee movie. Final yep. last movie. Yeah, it, lo- yeah. it looks like it. <laughs> he doesn't look. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, he's very, very sallow in the cheek and everything, too. But you want to know something? He was a professional all the way he through. He was a professional. He was, for sure. I mean, he's also hmm. he's also kind of like, he kind of comes across as like the most pro, like in terms of the actors on screen. Like, there's a lot of good people, but he kind of comes across like the most. I mean, he, he gets it. Vet. He totally like, gets it. He gets <laughs> He had been doing movies for like 35 years by that point. Yeah. So it's like. He just comes across like I've done this a million times. <laughs> I know who this guy is, <laughs> right? So, uh, Chris, why don't you go ahead and read? It? So, uh, you know, IMDb always has a great, sometimes great synopsis that are just like blunt and simple, or other times are just unwieldy. Go ahead and read us what the IMDb synopsis of the Delta Force is. After a plane is hijacked by terrorists, the Delta Force is sent in to resolve the crisis. (laughs) And that is all you need to know. (laughs) Yeah, uh, not a whole lot of detail in there, but uh, I don't know. I have a very, very soft spot for this movie in my heart. Um, I saw this movie probably about a year and a half after it came out. Um, I had an aunt. She was graduating from law school so everybody in the family kind of hopped in the car and drove on up to where she was graduating and everything and uh my uncle was there and my father was there and so all the women folk had kind of gone off to do their own thing to kind of celebrate my aunt's graduation from law school and all the guys are kind of hanging out and everything and i was this this is probably 87 so i'm 10 11 years old at the time and, uh, you know, we went to the video store and said, hey, let's rent a movie and get some pizza and we're going to watch shit and everything. And so what did we get at the video store? We got the Delta Force. <laughs> so I'm sitting in a in a apartment in Alabama in I think we were, where the hell were we? I think we we're in Birmingham, maybe. Uh, and oh, let me check my calendar. Yeah, let me see. Can, can you check on that? For no me, no yeah. fucking idea. Uh, but we're watching this movie, and the really cool part was is that uh, my uncle, who was with us, um, had just recently left the Air Force, and he was a special operations pilot for the United States Air Force. So he was the guy that actually took the Navy SEALs and took Delta Force and took the Army Rangers and the Green Berets and flew them in the C-130. So like so much of, of this movie kind of takes place on a C-130. So that was, you know, pretty cool to kind of see this airplane that my uncle had flown. And, you know, he kind of knows the real deal about this. So, you know, he's pretty a pretty good bullshit detector on on these movies. And, you know, it was kind of him that recommended it. And he's always been kind of hypercritical of how these special forces type movies kind of go and everything. Um, and to be honest with you, it was almost 30-something years ago, and I can't remember yeah. the, his exact reaction to it and everything. But um, because of my my love of, of my uncle, you know, his military career, and, you know, all this kind of special operations stuff, I became a huge fan of uh, the special operations community and kind of learning about what it is that they do and everything. So, it's, you know, I've read all the stuff that you could possibly find that talks about the Delta Force and everything. And one of the things that, you know, going back and watching this movie recently, because there was a time when, you know, I saw it as a kid, I loved it, got to be a teenager and thought this is hokey bullshit yada 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 and then kind of went back with more adult eyes after having you know read all this literature on it and uh they get a lot of stuff right i mean the movie starts off with the whole desert one 
uh, debacle that took place in 1980. So, you know, when uh, the, the, the Iranian revolution took place... What I just want to say that opening scene where there's just an exploding uh, helicopter, just a helicopter explodes. I was like, "You're getting ahead of yourself." They open with just a helicopter exploding. (laughs) That's the first thing you see. But I will say, unfortunately, a true story. We don't get another explosion for like an hour and fourteen minutes. So, uh, but But, I'm gonna just that explosion and all those guys running and Chuck Norris going like, "Where's?" Where's Pete? And everybody's yeah. like, oh, we couldn't get to him. And they go in. He's literally. There's a door right there. And that was one of the notes that I kind of took is that, like, you know, couldn't he have just, couldn't he have just McCoy run around the other side of the aircraft and gone into that open door where Pete was and just pulled no. him out that way? No, but, he has oh, to I... climb over the boxes, clearly marked yeah. highly explosive material. <laughs> Uh, that and the fact that Lee Marvin throughout that entire scene sets the bar for his uh, it's almost like it's done so often that it's like a recurring joke where he's like I'm not fucking waiting for yeah, you god damn it I won't be waiting for you, you son too of a fucking bitch. Long. and that's like the entire movie that's everything I've got a whole squad to worry about here it's like that's all he ever <laughs> says the whole movie it's like we get it dude you're not gonna you're gonna leave Chuck behind well. like as as poorly as those you know, incidents are kind of portrayed and stuff like that, it's actually factual. I mean that 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 really did happen on the very first mission that the Delta Force went out on, and it really wasn't their fault. Uh, they had some untrained pilots and everything that didn't know how to maneuver the aircraft that they had. Some of the aircraft that they needed for the rescue of the Iranian hostages and stuff uh, didn't show up on time, and uh, while they were trying to kind of evacuate, the mission had been canceled. Everybody was pulling out, and a helicopter helicopter collided with a C-130 and both of the aircraft exploded and I think there were 10 or 11 airmen that were killed uh, during that and there were a lot of people that were horribly wounded and everything so like the first time the public hears anything about Delta Force they're a big fuck up (laughs) and I was like I thought it's pretty ballsy that you start out this movie you know talking about the truth in that like there was a big fuck up that took place because everybody knew about the debacle at Desert One you know it's like it was on the news everywhere footage was kind of shown of like the smoldering aircraft and everything that's another common theme in the movie there's a lot of news footage and people talking about what's going on in a way it's it's a little too much like true to the time like yeah uh, but i mean it, once again it's truthful i mean that was the, the thing about watching this movie recently was is that they get a lot right but see i also <laughs> want to say that like i'm not having seen this movie not knowing anything about special ops or anything like that like i'm ex- and knowing canon films i literally was like i see chuck i see chuck norris and i'm like uh-huh and then that whole cast and the movie's called delta force and in my mind i'm expecting like a dirty dozen-esque kind of yeah. movie with all these character actors helping out Chuck Norris. So when we <laughs> like that's literally what I was expecting. So when the movie gets into it and the first hour is like a very melodramatic hostage situation on an airplane. <laughs> That's like real yeah. depressing. They're a real fucking bummer. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's. I think that was kind of like my first exposure as a kid to like, you know, what is terrorism? I mean, because you know, growing up in the eighties, you know, on the news you'd hear about fucking terrorism all the time, but like we had no concept of what terrorism was in the United States. You know, we were all perfectly safe here. You know, living in the U.S. and everything. Meanwhile, there's all kinds of crazy shit that's going on outside the world. And here's the other thing too: is that that incident that they depict on the plane that you know 
pseudo TWA. I mean, I can't remember what the, the name of the air ATW, was, I ATW think. or whatever it's it was a, and stuff like that. What but, is it? But, yeah. But yeah. TWA. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's like ATW in the movie, but it was, it's based on that TWA flight. Yeah. yeah. So flight 847 <laughs> in, in 1985. So the year before the movie was actually released, <laughs> there was a real life hostage crisis where, and they, you know, they even kind of portray this. Well, the, the woman that plays the stewardess, you know, there was actually a real life German stewardess named Uli Derrickson, who was forced by a bunch of terrorists to go through and separate the Jewish passengers from the rest of the plane. And she freaked the fuck out, just like the actress in the movie did. She goes, oh, you can't ask me to fucking do this. I'm fucking German. Just like me. I'm watching the movie and I'm like, oh, my God. God, this is like the '80s equivalent of United '93. Like the, you know that what that movie came out like a year after September yeah, 11th. The Paul Greengrass. It, movie. Yeah, and I've, it's like it's as if that was the movie, and then but then the last hour turned into like a Bourne film. Like, well, that, that, that is definitely here. I mean, there is actually a specific, if, if you look at it, it is at one hour and 14 minutes when basically all realism gets thrown out the window yeah. and then you're in a balls to the wall, Canon films, action flick. You know, yeah, yeah. Like that's, prior- but that's significant because I had the same expectation, especially these three films that we're going to discuss with the other two being considerably exploitative kind of like culturally. Yeah. I, I was like, it's 75 minutes into this movie before we get any serious chucking. Like, there's Chuck Norris just disappears. Like, it's amazing because it's like 35 minutes in, he shows up to the good, and they're like, what took you so long to get here? And I'm like, yeah, good fucking question. I was wondering the same thing. It's like, when is she going to start chucking? And it's like, it's like, it's damn near the runtime of an entire movie before he really well, starts it's two hours and 12 and... minutes the total on this movie. It's so, yeah, definitely I mean, two hours but, I mean, think over about two it. hours. The man, the man who is the producer, the executive producer, the man who founded the company, Canon Films, is directing this movie. And the, the, that's actually mm-hmm. significant because he, he when they first started Canon Films, uh, Menachem Golan was... A very well, he's always a hands-on producer, mm-hmm. but he was also the a director. So he made a ton of really bizarre Israeli uh, coming-of-age um, sex comedies. <laughs> you know, he was like the Bob Clark Porkies of his day <laughs> director. Just like no, dude, that's not kosher. You can't say Porkies <laughs> no, in Israel. Yeah, right. It's of not course, kosher at all. Of course all. not. So you know it. it but he stopped doing that, it, you know, at a certain point. And Did you I, call that goaties instead? I, I find that <laughs> sheepies. Sure, yeah. I find it interesting that this is the one and, that he chose to do. I can understand why because of what it is talking about and the the well, the subject matter is taken very very seriously. I mean, you know, Flight Eight Forty Seven. You know, people died. I mean, the, the whole sequence with uh, the Navy diver, the Navy who diver, is yeah, Jesus, beaten, that, that really practically happened. Yeah. to death. Yeah, and, and then they, they shot, shot him, him and threw him, him down. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my god, this is. Not a lot of those little details. I I looked them up because it was it was the German stewardess that you mentioned, flight attendant. Because I was like, that's that's so much. That scene is so like extra that (laughs) I was like, it's like it felt so it's shoehorned in there in a way that like could only have actually been in real. You know what I mean? So I was like, yes. Oh, so this really happened. So they absolutely had because it's so much when they get into all the like. You know, that whole bit of dialogue and all that is so much. It's yeah. very and, overwrought and, and very... It, yes, for sure. But yeah. because of that, I started looking, and, and, I, and to your point, like, the Navy pilot, the pregnant woman on board, the um, 
the separation of the Jewish passengers you mentioned. Um, uh, there's several, of, a bunch of that stuff was all like. I mean, I even think that they, there was a Catholic priest that decided to go yes, with them too. I mean, these right. are all like, like real life details, straight from the transcripts of what happened on the actual hijacked flight. Yeah, I love the idea that he just uh, yeah, because you're right. The, the, the details are all there when Robert Forster <laughs> as <Yeah>. Abdul. <laughs> Which is, I know, I know, amazing. Amazing. And again, I'm like, this, this is, is a, just a couple of years after the black hole. All I can think is I'm just like, it, and and alligator, you know, yeah. I've got, I'm just like, all I'm doing is I'm like, oh, my God, Robert Forster plays the bad guy. I know. Like, and, and then it, the, it starts and I'm like, Jesus, it's like, it's such a bummer. I was like so bummed out for that. that. Well, I mean, you know, they're, they're, he's just. You know, Golan is just constantly just cranking up the screws and like the tension on this one too. Though, like my favorite part is when they're trying to get the captain to open up the the cockpit door, and when yes. the door finally opens, he pulls the pin on the grenade, yes. and then finally the door opens up and smacks him right in the fucking face, <laughs> and then he drops the pin, and it's like, oh yeah. shit! You yeah, know? I don't know that I would say it ratchets up the tension. I don't know. I thought it did. I thought it okay. did. Okay. All right. I'll How say high this, were you when you were watching this? I was unfortunately <laughs> way too sober. <laughs> I will say this about that, and it will connect to something we mentioned before and a larger sort of where I can – like one hill I can help defend in this movie is like – so of the three we've picked, this easily wins best score. <laughs> oh, fucking Alan Silvestri's score, dude? That Alan Silvestri score awesome. scored the movie. And, I mean, you're talking about one of the absolute greats. And for a movie that doesn't, for an action movie that doesn't get to the action stuff for <laughs> 75 minutes, yeah. it's the score is actually doing a lot, especially then, right? Like now, like even, it still works now, but I'm sure then it was far more palpable and effective. Yeah, but it still works to sort of like, Hold sixty minutes attention. You get that airplane. driving drum beat in there yes. and everything. It's but like positive and everything. Guys, by the time that movie was over, I was like, if I ever have to listen to the fucking opening credits theme of like ABC Action News again, I'm gonna yeah. fucking put a <laughs> grenade in my pants. Like it was that one that that uh, what do you, was that a theme? I guess it's a theme. That's not a motif, right? Like at a certain point, like that's the theme. Yeah, theme to the oh Delta my Force. god, that yeah. was all. Yeah. Like I just I was like, oh my god. Okay, I get it. It, it, but it also well, yeah. it's a docudrama. I mean, really, if you look at it, we can't even really call it an action film. It's a docudrama. They go through and kind of just you know fictionalize some of these these details and everything. But like that, that's the other thing. It's like looking at it with my set of eyes, knowing the history behind everything too. I'm like, wow, they got that right, and wow, sure. they got that right, and wow, mm-hmm. they got that right, and wow, they got right. So I mean, for an audience that's going in and expecting you know a hardcore Chuck Norris action film and everything like that, you know, you got to get past that 100 one hour and 14 minute mark because then you start <laughs> yeah. to get it then you get motorcycles with machine guns and rocket launchers on them which is totally fucking ridiculous and 80s awesome i love that he doesn't ever awesome. seem to aim them other than up and down but he's always able to hit oh yeah his intended oh. target i'm uh, you know that's although for, him breaking robert forster's arm is pretty bad that was too. a great fight scene too <laughs> I, I do want to talk though more about that about the score because that score was um, Alan Silvestri again, and he was. Uh, this is post Back to the Future. I wonder. Yeah, if he... that, that's that's what's surprising to me about it. In looking at it, is like he had already done Romancing the Stone and Back to the Future in the two years previous to this. So it seems like a real win for them. And, I mean, think about the scale of Back yeah. to the Future. Yeah. 
yes. That's a massive orchestral score, and it's just like one of the most iconic scores ever, especially of the era, and especially if it was the previous year. Right, right. right. This is much more like modest and synthy and stuff. So I'm sure they were like, "Well, we don't have that kind of money, but like we'd love for you to be on it." And you know, we got Chuck Norris. And I think I read they had 15 grand. That's what I'm saying. I'm not surprised. Yeah, but but guys like that is kind of like, well, he can make you a score with you know, give him some chopsticks and spoons and (laughs) score if he likes the movie. And he's claimed that Sylvester has claimed he was like, I just wanted to kind of showcase what uh, uh, like you could do with the synth that like a, a. what a good composer can do yes. with this simple tool. And I think that's what I mean is like the, that's what's interesting about these three is I don't know that because like one of the other films we'll talk about also opens very much and through the entirety of the movie feels like a guy sitting there with a Casio keyboard in his lap watching the movie <laughs> and kind of just making stuff up. But in the hands of like a guy who's like, you know, and one of the Mount Rushmore of composers of, of yeah. our era and stuff for sure mm-hmm. is like – you know, you can you, he can make it with whatever tools he's got at his disposal. Now, Ben, you've done stuff. You know, you work a lot. You've you've collaborated with that the Asheville uh, Symphony. Is am I, is that right? It's a symphony yeah. or orchestra? Okay, yeah. and you use uh, a lot of orchestral music in your films, that, but you actually use the the bodies, the people, the musicians. Yeah, um, do you find like? That there is something very freeing about, like you said, just sitting there with the synthesizer, kind of like making up something, kind of like how John Carpenter scores his movies, you know, just goes like, eh, one pass, and he does the score, versus working with that many people and... Well, having to do orchestration and, having and all that, too. I mean, it's just, it's a complex thing. Well, so I guess a short, a, an abridged answer to was is a, sort of a longer thing is is to say that like they're different kinds of challenging they're different so because one yeah you have all these extra steps you've got extra players it only takes one to sort of fuck up a whole take you gotta you've got to prepare you've got to do charts and you got you you know there's so many more steps to recording live players but when it's just you and a synthesizer like it's just you <laughs> synthesizer. right so it's like you know it's challenging in a different way but in it does sometimes afford you more efficient means of constantly having to make changes as changes constantly need to be made um but it doesn't seem to be any easier necessarily it's just that they're just kind of different kinds of of challenging uh because i've done films that are entirely orchestral and live players and i've done films that are entirely like synchronicity was yeah. an entire like eighties Blade Runner style yes. Angelus love letter yes. analog synth score, and that was really tough and really challenging to do. You know, well, I watched uh, the, this video that I think you posted recently, uh, where you were working showing it was some behind the scenes of your score for the Beta Test, the Jim Cummings movie, mm-hmm. and you were working remotely with uh, a conductor, I guess. Oh yeah, and- so that was for the Night House. Oh, that was that for the night house. Okay, that's oh, that's right. It was for the opening cue for the night house, and the how you wanted it uh, the the open the first note, and you wanted to pitch shift the note like or explain how that worked because it was wild watching you do orchestrate that. Pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, it was that was neat, and that was my first experience doing remote recording like that. And so um, here I have like sort of an abstract conceptual idea that I want to try. I don't even quite know if it's going to work. And so you first work with an orchestrator to try to communicate the idea in such a way that they can get it on the chart so that the musicians can make sense of it. 
but then between each take, I have to keep giving them notes because yeah. once I'm hearing it in real time, I need to make adjustments. Well, I'm sitting here in Asheville, and they're in Macedonia <laughs> because we had to do it remotely because of the production schedule. We were doing that on Christmas Eve. So oh, that was like damn. the only place I could find an orchestra that would come in and record it. <laughs> and um, so I'm having to I'm, – I'm hearing it back live, and I'm communicating through a Zoom call to the orchestrator who's then communicating my notes to the translator over in, on the other side who's then telling the conductor – who's then communicating it to the musicians in their native tongue. Yes. So there's so many variables, right? And yes. The, and the concept was that each of the 30 players had one of three notes and a set of instructions for bending the pitch of their note towards the direction of one of the other notes. And it was to... You had to get it just right for all of that to disappear into just one sound that seemed yeah, yeah. like this kind of textural thing that we were going for. And mostly it just sounded horrible until the <laughs> one take that I posted and shared. It was like that's when it finally locked in after several takes. And then when it does, it's like, you know, magic. And I love that moment too that. where you're like, that's it. That's, that's it. what I was looking for. It's just such like, a cool moment. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Chris, what's what are some more awesome things about Delta Force, man? Bone crunching action, plenty of bullet hits, wisecracks by Chuck Norris. What's the best wisecrack he has in that movie? There's because the, he has uh, one where he like he says something like, "Yeah." <laughs> like, I think his response is like the slowest. Was it the, when the lights out, like when he when uh, they crawl through the sewer pipe to go into the school, where they've taken all the Jewish hostages off and then put them in that school in Beirut, and so they crawl through the sewer pipe, and then they've got the night vision goggles on, yeah. and then they pop through the manhole cover and eradicate everybody else in the room, and then there's the one terrorist that's hiding underneath the bed. And <laughs> oh, when that's he, when, it. when that's he pulls when he pulls back, <laughs> nighty night. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it's like this. Just weird, like, they're three feet from one another, and the terrorist hiding underneath the bed is shooting at Chuck Norris, <laughs> and Chuck Norris, you know, is just, <laughs> kills him. Nighty night. Nighty night. I quite, I quite liked the, uh, there's a line, it's just kind of a throwaway, but I liked it. It's like early in the movie when the guy's, like, at the bar, and he gets the call, and he's flirting with the bartender, and she goes, anyone ever accuse you of being a gentleman, Nick? And he goes, not lately. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I mean like every time you see Lee Marvin in the movie he's yes. such an asshole he's either like I'm not waiting for you god damn it or he's like you got great looking legs honey yeah <laughs> and then most of the he's like I'm not waiting for you hey did I ever tell you that I'm not the waiting? one about how I'm not waiting for you <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, you did fucking every line of dialogue is that there's well, another you know, little easter egg thing did you know that um i found this out just reading about the movie uh liam neeson is an uncredited delta force member so is Extra. michael t wilson yeah bubba wow. mckelty williamson i didn't know liam neeson's in there yeah, yeah liam neeson and bubba from forrest gump is in there too wow damn yeah. damn just one of the extra delta force dudes that doesn't have a line yep. or anything Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I, I was I looking for him, and I couldn't quite pick him out and stuff like that. I saw uh, Michael T. Williams, yeah, I see but... him. I saw him. I think I saw him. I was like, I guess that's it. I guess. I, I mean, I don't know. He, he might as well He's be. He's not I, Steve James. No, unfortunately. I want to see Steve James. I Well, Steve James is dead. I man. know, but I want him to come back to life, Chris. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> seeing how he was in American Ninja and knowing that, you know, there are dark ninja powers where they can come back from the dead. 
mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, maybe it wouldn't no... be too much to ask for Steve James to kind of make his. I mean, I thought he was great in everything. I love he did. Steve James. Everything. There's just, there's Steve James about just, his... When he died, he just hid in the ground in the dirt. Maybe. And then you can, like, there's probably classic a classic ninja <laughs> escape. A, a <laughs> smoke no. bomb. And then, like, all of a sudden, where'd he go? I guess he's gone. <sighs> Shit. All right, Chris, give it, give, tell us some more. What else is – give us some, uh, some tallies on death. Uh, you get Israeli aircraft painted an American scheme because basically when they went to the U.S. government and said, would you like to help us make this movie? And the American government said, no, we don't like to talk about losing. Yeah, right. <laughs> so the fact that you're starting this movie off with one of our biggest fuck-ups, no. We're not going to give you any access to aircraft. So – of course, Menachem goes, well, that's fine. I go back to Israel and say, hello, yes, uh, can I use your aircraft? The whole and, movie was shot in Israel. Yeah. Which is insane. And actually, a lot of the IDF, you know, Israeli Defense Forces, if you see Israeli soldiers in that that's movie, them. they're really Israeli yeah. soldiers. Yeah. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah. What's crazy is when you start to watch canon films, you start to see a lot of Israeli actors. I yeah. mean, like, he, like everywhere. Like, the, everybody who has, like, a one line. You know, it's probably somebody well, the one that guy, Menachem was it? probably promised jo- a favor Jamis to. or whatever, who was uh, Robert Forster's, you know, brother and boss yeah, and everything. Yeah. Like, he's like an Iron Eagle 3, you know, you see... Oh, the best Iron Eagle. Oh, definitely. <laughs> well, actually, I don't know, Aces... <laughs> what else? What else? What else? Oh, God, what else? I mean, of course, the, the last film that Lee Marvin ever did, you mm-hmm. know, he's still working it. Still working. And I think he died, what, three or four months after the movie was released? Damn. He was only 61. Yeah. He wasn't that. I mean, he might have been too old to be a, a hard special drinking forces. Lincoln, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I also want to say that after all the, all of the action, like when it finally picks up and there's a bunch of action and they do everything, that then it goes right back to being a real fucking bummer. They go right into oh, like they kill, uh, his Pete? buddy, his partner Pete, dying, and everybody fucking crying and weeping. And then everybody, then it goes back to celebratory. Everybody gets off the. Off the plane, everybody's cheering, and, and then it goes right well, back to them carrying his corpse here's, out. Here's the like, other thing, Jesus. too. Is that something else from real life that they pulled as well? Back in the 1970s, the, uh, in Entebbe. You guys ever heard of Entebbe? It's a... Uh, Isn't that a Christopher Nolan it, movie? It's it's a uh, there was an airport in Uganda, you know, so oh. Idi Amin and everything, and there were a group of terrorists that hijacked a plane and they flew it to Uganda, and uh, Shiret Maktal, which was a Israeli special forces group, they put together this mission to go into this airport and rescue the hostages that were there. So pretty much that latter half of the movie where they're trying to rescue the hostages that have been taken to the school and everything, not on the plane, but, you know, off the plane, was something that legitimately happened as well. And uh, there was the guy that was in command of that mission. His name was uh, Yonatan Netanyahu, whose younger brother is Benjamin Netanyahu. Who is the, the rapper. Pro- yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> but he's with, well, he, hanging out with Modest Yahoo as yes. well. Um, <laughs> But anyway, uh, there was one person that was killed on that mission, and it was the guy that was commanding the mission. So uh, Yonatan was, so was killed. So much plane hijacking. This was I back know. in the old days when you could just bring your hand grenades on in a toolbox and stash <laughs> them in the bathroom. I, mean, I put so it, I put it in, the, the, uh, in the paper towels. Make sure that you wash your hands and then get the gun. Uh, it was back when all terrorists looked like Robert Forster. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, man, Robert Forster's bottle, pretty damn way, intense in that. You know, I got uh, on Wolf of Snow Hollow, uh, you know, I got to score his last, that was his last film. Yeah. And so that was a cool thing for me to see him. And then it was just like when it started, I had the same reaction. I was like, oh, you're the bad guy? Sweet. 
that's awesome. I love Robert Forster. I well, I, I went yeah, and I watched great. The Black Hole earlier this week as well. So it's like I watched that, and then I, of course, knowing that Delta Force, I was going to have to watch that too. I'm like, here we're going to see him as a good guy, and now he's a bad guy. I'm sorry. I love this movie. And, you know, a lot of people go through and complain that it's a bunch of shit and everything. And that's that's all fine and dandy. You can all fuck yourselves. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> I, but yeah, no, I, I love this movie. I think it is a consummate example of what canon films is. You know, it's I, I like agree. they try to go for legitimacy. Yeah. And they, of course, they also try to, like, you know, give their audience what they want as well. It's a prestige. It's like as much as a canon of a canon prestige film as could possibly be. Um, it you know it was a, a a theatrical release for them, one of the rare theatrical releases yeah. that they ever did. It was directed by the man himself, Menachem Golan, and like really hands on on the production. It obviously, meant a lot to him. Um, he's a, a bit of a ham fisted director, probably is a, a way of saying it. Um, delicious ham, I will say, but not kosher. Not kosher, right? I don't know if you ever. But tried that is licking... a good. That is a good point because. That movie was eighty six, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know? So, so that was built on the shoulders of the other two that we'll talk about because they came before that and sort of paved the way, if you will. Hell their, yes, they did for their moment with Delta Force. Well, I think mm-hmm. we should use that. Let's get into what um, our second film right. is uh, today. Um, ben, what are you bringing to the table for eighties canon films? From 1984, from Canon Films, I am bringing Ninja 3, The Domination. He is the most feared and powerful warrior. A ninja who breaks from ancient tradition and explodes onto America. His soul possesses the body of an innocent woman and transforms her into a lethal assassin. Who are you? I want to help her. Only a ninja can destroy a ninja. Her only hope is Yamada, the master ninja, who has been sent to destroy him. Where Revenge of the Ninja left off, Ninja 3 begins. An epic struggle of superhuman strength and supernatural forces. Ninja 3, The Domination. It was referenced recently, I think, in one of you, something you posted, something that I came across, I think that you shared, right? Isn't this how this started? Is it? And I was like, oh my God, I <laughs> yes. remember this movie. Yes, and I think I was, posted something on Instagram about like uh, the, just a scene. I think we because I think I had a screening party of it, and yeah, you responded <laughs> with that. I was yeah, like, yo, I remember this shit. <laughs> this and, was a fucking HBO staple back in the day, and and that must have been like my parents divorced, and my dad got HBO, <laughs> and and like fast forward to now, and it explains a lot. Yeah, yes. because like. You know, things like just stumbling, wandering into the living room late at night and fucking poltergeist being on TV or something like that or yeah. Ninja 3. And I'm, you know, in 84, I'm six years old. So it's like it kind of explains a lot, you know. Um, I, I have a feeling that all dads who got uh, divorced from their wives and had children, especially sons, 
got HBO <laughs> yes, <laughs> for yeah. that very reason. What else are you going to do? Yeah. That's what my dad was the same way. He was like, okay, so here we go. We got HBO, so you're, you you come over more. <laughs> like, yes, awesome. <laughs> Let's watch inappropriate things. <laughs> there was a million – looking back, I you know, that integral period of like between 5 and 10 of having HBO in the house probably – is the way I ended up seeing even even just things like Back to the Future and all these other things that we're that we're talking about from that era, you know? Yeah, this was certainly one of them. And it either <clears throat> I'm I'm trying to I don't I don't you know my memory I was six so my memory's fuzzy about that period. But I definitely I don't know if this instigated or just supplemented a ninja phase as I'm sure we all had. But <laughs> yes. I definitely had ninja phase. <laughs> <laughs> and this that's why I remembered this so well. I was like, oh, that fell right in there. And all those Shokosugi movies were my Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis back then. That was like there, there was another one called Pray for Death. Oh yes. That's Pray for got Death. The the, the uh yes. chain chain mail yes. with the big old Sinbon Shuriken like right there. Yes. And it's like him right. looking out of the corner of his eye with the uh the ninja eyeliner. You know, ninja yes. eyeliner's a big thing. There's so. a lot big of ninja thing. eyeliner. And that was that was my guy. Like that was my dude. Yeah. And those were like he was the dude back then. And um like my my fascination with all of it got to the point where like I was collecting actual throwing stars <laughs> and like all and but it was amazing. My dad would like take me and we'd like drive to the nearest, you know, point of civilization <laughs> no, point town of civilization, which would be like an hour away. Occasionally when they would have these like warehouse or convention center style sh- uh, shows or what would you call them, like uh, trade shows. Yeah, yeah. And you could go buy this stuff. <laughs> and so here's like it's so funny to me now like as an adult to think back about my dad as a single divorced guy with a couple <laughs> of kids like in his early 30s. And it's just like taking his you know, buying these like deadly nin- sharp ninja throwing stars and all this stuff and i had all this stuff and collected them and it was amazing and uh so i have you can't see them on this thing but i have on my cheek there's two little dots on my cheek below my right eye and they look like freckles there's these two little brown dots but they're actually scars because one night while lying in bed admiring my new Ninja throwing star. <laughs> she dropped it on your own face. Fell, <laughs> lodged into oh, my cheekbone. My God. And I sort of looked sort of like, ah, with it sticking <laughs> out of my face. And just two little points, just wham, all the way in there to the point deep enough that I could lean up and it's like sticking straight out, you know. And uh, I, I, just, I think about all of that stuff now in the context of like, man, it must be. I don't have kids, but I, <laughs> I don't know. I was like, thank God my dad kept me alive. Like, I survived being that <laughs> The age. era of ninja. Yes. There, that really was an era, man. I mean, like, oh, absolutely. there was 100%. magazines devoted to yes. ninja. It all started in 68, man, with You Only Live Twice. Yeah, but it didn't. I, I really think that canon films are oh, the well, ones sure. that really, yeah. truly Revenge of the Ninja. Enter ninja the one, Ninja. Yeah. It was just the first one. Yeah. So that's the thing. We're, I mean, we are talking about Ninja 3. and. Sure. Technically, there's no Ninja 1 or Ninja 2 with that title, but this is a loose sequel to 
Enter the Ninja, and then Return of the Ninja. Mm-hmm. And then there's this movie, <laughs> Ninja 3, <laughs> the Tom. Which I'm the guessing guy- we, we could have picked either of those two, but there's something distinctly just bizarre. Of, there- and, and staying there's a staying power to Ninja 3. It's just so weird. There, it really is. I mean, it's basically, it's a, a, it's... The Exorcist meets yeah. Flashdance yes. meets, I guess, yes. a canon ninja film. It's like, is ninja exploitation a thing? Because yes. this would be the poster. Yes, it really is. It. it really is. I mean, I, okay. So we have who 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 made this movie? Because give us some info, Ben. Um, do, do you know we got a dude whose name I can't remember? Sam. But... Okay, directed by Sam Furstenberg. Firstenberg, that's who it. was who a, did like he was a house director for he Canada. sure was he made uh at one point in his career he was making a movie a year one movie every year easily is what he was directing which is and i think probably even more than that probably, probably like three or four a year yeah i and it's impressive he's a true journeyman director um and yep. I, I love Sam Furstenberg and you know he this so isn't the only movie good old journeyman Sam Furstenberg yeah this Not isn't the only the movie, only on this movie... List. that's right that he directed yeah yeah so a little, um little tip uh, he 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 did a he did a little bit of everything <laughs> but more importantly stars Lucinda Dickey that's right Lucinda Dickey and uh and your your boy Sho Kasugi who you mentioned um it also has. Uh, <laughs> Jordan Bennett. <laughs> oh man, as a uh, Swamp Thing, and uh, <laughs> the ever reliable James Hong, of Officer course. Officer Hairshirt. <laughs> <laughs> there's honestly, there's so much to unpack about Ninja really Three is. that we, we could should, do an entire show. Uh, on it really should yeah. just be. It's going to be tough to kind of like uh, get it all down. But do you have? Can you? Is there? Are, can you read well, us the IMDb? Gonna take us, oh, the IMDb thing? Yeah, yeah can you yeah. tell us the IMDb synopsis of this movie? An evil ninja attempts to avenge his death from beyond the grave by possessing an innocent woman's body. That's, yeah. I guess, we, I guess that's right. what happens. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Doesn't on board. even scratch the surface. Of... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, that happens also. <laughs> it's uh, wild, yeah. This so is a wild you, movie. I mean, you the, the, the opening... I mean, I think Delta Force probably wins like best opening moment. Yeah, exploding for its helicopter. Singular exploding yeah. helicopter. However, it still is, <laughs> it is challenged by fifteen straight minutes of ninja carnage on a golf course. <laughs> the <laughs> Which, last place I know you would want to see or expect it's like to see a ninja broad movie. daylight. You know, they they talk about ninjas being like shadow warriors. <laughs> and like there are no shadows. This is in Arizona in full sun. <laughs> trees. It looks like you're just running around the Desert. Burbank Country Club or something. Yes. It's like, and, it's and everybody's ridiculous. kind of looking at this guy like, hey, what yeah. the fuck? Like <laughs> he just like is that man in his pajamas. <laughs> yeah. He's so exposed, and it's even like the shots are really wide of him just running from the cop cars. It's so peculiar yes. of, a, of a ninja attack. Right? Yes. It's the most suburban kind of thing. But like in that opening, he takes out some rich guy, his girlfriend, some Secret Service dudes, about 40 policemen. Surfs on top of a cop car, crushes a golf ball barehanded, yes, yes. climbs a palm style. tree, yes, climbs a palm tree, jumps onto a helicopter in midair, 
gets shot about 150 times and still escapes. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are more squibs than like Sonny Corleone on the fucking causeway Actually, in the Godfather. Actually, there's there's no squibs. <laughs> well, it, it's like it's like an old western. You just he just when he gets shot, he's just moving. You would think he would be like all RoboCop. You know, like the dude gets blown apart by. There's not a single squib in there. There's these tiny, an tiny ninja, and they shot him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happened for the documentary. That part obvious. Yeah, <laughs> back during the glory days when he could still kill stuntmen. <laughs> I love, I love the, that the cops all converge on him and they do this really bizarre thing where they stand around in a circle. Yeah, and fire so they at can him. shoot each other while they're doing it too. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, wow, that's a interesting formation for a, a, a shootout but hey you know i guess it kind of worked sort of but in that and, moment mm-hmm. he's he's getting shot we are seeing kill bill style all of mm-hmm. the guys that come out to be the the villains of the well it's arguable if they're villains are we on the side of the ninja well that's the thing it's a it's a thin plot point at best yeah. it was like so wait the whole time this whole all of this is just for him to get revenge on the few cops he didn't kill that day right. like it's like, kind of crazy that it was like so he's it's all a vendetta for the the few handful that managed to to get him yeah but they, the they guess, paint whatever. those guys as total assholes too yeah, it's like you know the yeah. cop that's playing pool he's an asshole the cop that's got like the two hookers and that's the other thing it's like you walk out of the police station with a hooker on each arm <laughs> and then go right across the street to the bathhouse oh my that's god the- i mean honestly th- this is a movie that like it just gets like each scene just gets better and better and it kind of functions like a fever dream (laughs) a wet fever dream for prepubescent males yeah the opening golf course scene is the party where you drop the acid and then the rest of the movie is the acid kicking in dude i'm peeking i'm peeking yes uh but yeah we mentioned the score and that's the one i was referring to earlier which you know is sounds like a guy with like a casio keyboard in his lap just kind of noodling around doing yes. things for just holding holding the one note down that's that's the score yeah but that like inter- those opening titles too that's one thing i loved about the titles because you know they're done sort of in that you know uh sumiasin like asian painting yes 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 and then they've got the little ninja figure like when it says ninja three the domination there's like a little ninja guy just painted right on the the titles there oh my god you're entirely sure what the domination part is yeah like specifically i mean you would think it'd be ninja three the possession i think they wanted her to be in like leather with whips and stuff and i think lucinda dickey actually said no really she had just done like two movies in a row where she's like in handcuffs and chains and stuff so she was like i'm over it i don't know huh but it but is but it's a minor point it's a minor point (laughs) but what the but what what the movie does have is it might I don't know. One, the, the other movie we're going to talk about may challenge this, but it might have the most 80s scene of these 80s movies, which is like early in the movie when we first go. So I wrote down, we've got big 80s hair. Yeah. She's in her own apartment playing a stand-up arcade game. <laughs> in her Call, own apartment. What's it called? Bouncer. 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 It's a game that I don't think ever yeah. existed. Wearing an aerobics outfit. <laughs> 
<laughs> while dancing to a very 80s sounding song. You know, it's like a caricature of 80s music. And I, lo- 80s. I love that it's her apartment is like, I don't know, it's like industrial chic. Yeah. Like her refrigerator just has one of those air conditioning or air vents that like spins around like on top of it just sitting there. And there's like neon. Her her actual bed is made out of scaffolding. Yes, yes. <laughs> just like careful. Well, and the fact that she works for the fucking phone company and climbs yes. up telephone poles and everything, it's like okay, not the most average job that I would expect a part time aerobics instructor to have. I mean, but... I guess we are already getting our excitement for Ninja Three. We're getting ahead of ourselves in the sense yes. that Lucinda Dickey uh, plays a, a t- <laughs> telephone line repair woman. Mm. Um, named Chris, who... Go ahead, Ben. Oh, no, go, go take it. Take who, it. Well, she she um, stumbles upon the this dead ninja. Well, he's not dead the, yet. Yeah, not dead yet. <laughs> not dead yet. Stumbling to his death. Yes, and he attacks her, but then calls her back <laughs> to him somehow, and then seemingly possesses her. Um, and from there... That's where the that's the crux of the drama of the movie. Right. So yeah. yes, and so it's the cops that the aforementioned cops that gather in a circle to gun him down finally. At the end of the golf course scene, he stumbles away, finds us in a dicky, possesses her, and gives her the sword. Yes. That she takes home. Yes. So she takes his sword home and it's in reporting the dead Japanese assassin <laughs> that she meets you call him officer <laughs> officer hair shirt <laughs> look That's i don't want to say needs. that this guy is hairy but he he looks like rick baker made his costume for a fucking dino de Laurentiis movie <laughs> it makes austin powers look like powder <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. yeah. It's something else. And Dude, there's a lot of him with his shirt off. You're in a movie. Like, I, I understand. <laughs> we're, you know, bodies are beautiful. I get it. But at a certain point, when you get cast in a movie as the male lead who's going to be shirtless for the majority of your time, get a wax. <laughs> That's what I said in the beginning. You can see it. You can see the back from the front. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's coming up over his shoulders. It's crazy. Oh, my God. He looks like Stephen King in Creepshow. Like, he looks like there's, it's like just thick, wiry, <laughs> black mold growing on every inch of his body. And look, you know, you're, you're stuck with what you got. But And yet. Get away. It's wax. enough. It's not enough. To keep Lucinda Dickey from, (laughs) as we alluded to in his opening, in the first uh, sort of uh, love scene, if you will, seducing him by pouring a can of V8 (laughs) across her half-naked body for him to slurp up. (laughs) Let me ask you this, Ben, because you and I are about the same age and everything, and I think we saw this around the same sort of time. What did you think of that as a eight-year-old, nine-year-old guy? It's like... Taking notes. Exactly. <laughs> so this is what women like. All right. She tings out the V8, it's on. I need to make sure to know what's coming next. I've got to ask. I mean, like, do, do you guys know, did Nine and a Half Weeks come out before this movie? Yes. 
So it's got to be like a nine and a half weeks play, right? Probably. Like, you know, we're like pouring milk, like Kim Basinger pouring milk on that was yourself. Eighty three. I don't know, but and then but V eight. Like, but V8! <laughs> because this was my relationship to V8 then. I was just like, as a kid, I was like, who drinks this shit? Like, I remember trying and once we go, are you kidding? Like, you know. Well, I'm, remember, and, she's constantly busting his balls about, I don't drink soda. I don't drink yeah. coffee. It's bad right. for your health. It's oh, yeah, she's a health nut. She's a health nut. She's like totally a health nut. So I guess. And she doesn't drink soda. She also mentions that. Yeah, so I guess that's her trying to be health conscious, but, like, come on! I guess, like, I've had, uh, you know, uh, food and or liquids and intimacy combined, and never would I have thought tomato juice would be an additive to that uh, But then we're not talking about, like, into the relationship sex. This is the no. first time. First time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Come back to my apartment. Yeah. This is how she <laughs> seduces him. She pours it on her throat mm-hmm. as if he's a fucking Dracula and <laughs> <laughs> pours down and she does this back bend all the way, basically pulls him to the ground. And um, dancers. The only way it could be any more offensive yeah, is if it were pouring on him. And she was <laughs> yes. slurping it off of his. It was just sucking soak the chest up like hair clean. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, sucking V8 juice off of Alf. So then, basically, it pivots into straight. It becomes a horror film for a while. Yeah, like it's a straight possession movie. And yes, because that's kind of the first moment where she's exhibiting. Well, we assume to be odd behavior. Maybe the V8 thing is like her move. Is it the thing, nut. Ben? I don't know. I'm never mm-hmm. sure if like that's just she's into that, or if it's because she's there is no Lucinda, there is only Zool, mm-hmm. yeah, Ninja. <laughs> you know uh, that that's why that happens. I guess yeah. I never thought maybe it's just the ninja's got like a sense of humor. Is the ninja into dudes? <laughs> you know, he, <laughs> hairy dudes. <laughs> he looked a little light in the tobby, if you ask me. Okay. He, wore, he wore guy liner. Maybe. Maybe. That I have to think of. It's like any time though that she, when when I guess the ninja takes over her body though, and the, her eyeliner changes, like, yeah, that's uh, probably wouldn't go over too well these days if you tried to do a makeup job like that. Yeah, she's she's definitely uh, uh, she's got very John Wayne. In, uh, it's, also, yeah. <laughs> it's also a movie that I think I think like a key thing. This is a movie that just decided to add to invent and add the rule, which becomes a plot point of the movie. Only a ninja can kill, <laughs> can kill a ninja, <laughs> which shows up in a lot of in a lot of places. And yeah, and it's just kind of like when, I guess when they came across it, we're like, boys, we got us, we got a movie, <laughs> we got a sequel. Here's How about this? Only a ninja can do. Why? Especially, but yeah, I why guess not? a demon ninja. Why not? It's so funny. Oh my god. That's 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 the whole thing. Canon in the eighties is if you had to like pick a phrase for him, why not? Why not? <laughs> Every single Only canon film in the eighties. Why not? Um but I, I I particularly like all the sequences where like uh <laughs> because there's the whole thing where the arcade game <laughs> becomes possessed and like shoots lasers at her, dude, yeah. and that is talk about the, like when the acid kicks in, like that is yes. like the perfect moment. Um, that is such a great sequence, and the the sword so comes floating, floating out, out of the closet, grabs yeah. it. I like, I love that moment. Well, the visual of yeah. the way they did the sort of light beams that are coming from the arcade game on her face, I guess. 
mapping the <laughs> demon. I don't know what it's doing, but I guess it's sort of a bridge to give us a tangible evidence of like I don't know where the <laughs> de- the ninja spirit sort of detoured through the arcade game. Poltergeisty. Yeah, it's very poltergeisty. Just they had a guy who was like, well, you know, I'm a laser technician and I have a laser that I think we can use um, like, cool. for a shot. Yeah, shoot it in her face. I'm gonna shoot my laser in her face. But but that scene's amazing because they they keep doubling down on it. Because first it's like the sh- the lights and the color and the dry ice is like pouring out of the mm. bottom of the. The wind the, machine uh, blowing the window wind open. Blowing. And then you got the laser beams, and then the sword just blow, it dangles on a clearly on a wire. It's, it's just kind yeah, of bounces it's along. It's shaking around. It's not the yeah. sturdiest but of they did, swords. They scotch, they scotch lit that. They took actually scotch light and put that on the blade itself. Yeah, it looks and then, great. You know, put, a, yeah. put a source light on it. It looks great. It turn it right into the light, and it yeah. like glows gold. And then she spikes the camera and goes straight into like yeah. fourth wall down. Just yes. looks right into it. <laughs> So like they just with go for the makeup. whole thing, yeah. And the yeah. wheels just come fully off the bus. At that <laughs> you got to give it this. Lucinda Dickey is committed to yeah. the role. Oh, Absolutely. Yes. Um, I, in fact, to the point where I give her I a was, lot of credit. The movie works because of her. Well, I was having a hard time tr- trying to figure out if she even had a stunt person. I don't think she did. Like the whole scene where uh, the girl's getting accosted outside of the gym by those guys and everything. <laughs> by the gang Which, of dudes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Lucinda Dickey gets accosted by a gang of dudes outside while her entire dance class watches and a cop watches and does not only does he not put a stop to it but he arrests her (laughs) (laughs) is a way by the way not to keep the peace but to get into her pants that's right and it works it successfully (laughs) works works. um but i do have to say i was a little bit Watching back, I was like, I am kind of disappointed that Billy the boyfriend doesn't get it at the end of this movie because you kind of like, I know he means well and he's kind of, but I'm like, Ugh, I just want you to get killed. In this movie. <laughs> really, he probably, do. he probably should have. Well, you know, if and you I, shave his back hair, he loses his powers. <laughs> it. At a certain point, you think that he's going to start like milking. You know, like yeah. he's a hairy beast. Think like of like a... how much she, she has to sweep up after he leaves after spending the night, too. It's like, wow, I've got a whole nother cop here. Luckily, her floor, <laughs> sheds. floor is made of concrete. And I it's... also had scribbled down. There's that the other. Uh, well, one question I wrote is, why does she have a payphone in her apartment? <laughs> <laughs> but just we'll go over that one. And, but the one where she tries to re- the second time that all the flashing and neon and strobe lights and she tries to resist the demonic possession by dancing she like she's like turns on the aerobics music and just tries to dance it out dance it away she she calls the guy and she's like listen there's something going on i know you don't understand and like hangs up dancing the the demon away but but the demon wins because the sword floats out of the closet and chops the stereo in half No more shitty wannabe eighties music. Oh my yeah. god! Like immediately, it's just like nope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it gets better. This the movie gets better. Every scene, the movie just keeps. Like I said, it builds like a fever pitch. It really is an acid trip fever dream. I mean, we and get then amazingly, in- <laughs> the last line you finally get to the end of the movie, and Shogosugi just goes. 
it's over now. <laughs> and then okay. it is. It's over. And no one said anything for a while. he just walks away. He just walks away. He's like, it's over now. And then the credits roll. Do you want to ride? Like, I guess it is. It's but in the meantime, on, our, on the 80s checklist, we have a substantially sized boombox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I mentioned big hair, aerobics class, stand-up arcade games. There's a, there's a verbal reference to Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. Oh, wait, what is that? Um, I missed that. I don't remember that. There's like, um, what is it? They say they're they're doing they're going to the ch- the, the the witch doctor and okay. like, sure beats yeah, Rocky, Rocky Horror. Horror. Yeah. yeah, that's so unclear. By the way, like, okay, so he goes and he brings up thousands of dollars. It looks like is what he pays <laughs> James Hong as the the magical uh, wizard man, mm-hmm. um, and he's the one that pays for it she's making jokes the whole time but it's very unclear like exactly what's supposed to happen like and then she starts going they tie her up and chain her up and she starts going through the possession throws (laughs) flipping they have the dummy doing the flips yeah that's a good one (laughs) just now you know apparently that they they actually cut a sequence from that scene um they had her uh head spinning around uh, little two um, Linda Blair. <laughs> yeah, I think that they just were like, no, we can't do. It. I, I don't know why. I it's the the candles was kind of cool though. Oh, the candles <laughs> bursting yeah. into flames. Yeah. yeah, I guess they couldn't have her spewing vomit everywhere because they already probably had that happening in the audience during the <laughs> sex scene. <laughs> <laughs> they were just like too much vomit. It's like nah, hairball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you also the, the, the we should mention that the film concludes with a battle between essentially a zombie ninja and a one-eyed ninja. Yes. Which is pretty good for for a ninja showdown. Yeah, well, actually, you kind of get that whole Jubei Yagyu thing going on, too. The fact that, like, Shokasugi is, like, wearing the eye patch and it's a suba from a sword. Which is really awesome. That's a really yeah. cool detail. I love that. But you're right. You're, zombie ghost ninja versus a one-eyed ninja in a battle to the... I guess the Who death, has uh, better depth perception? <laughs> a battle, battle to the dirt? Who will know. spin into the dirt first? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love the, the spinning into the dirt. He does a lot of dirt digging in that. Yeah. There's, a lot of, there's a lot of hiding by spinning into a hole in the ground. It's a, it's a, this, it's a, it's a classic ninja move to go for the smoke bomb. You know? yeah, Superman just did win it, in too. doubt, smoke bomb him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and bug out. <laughs> There was also um, I, I looked when I was reading up about it. I found out that um, Shokosugi's first credit was as an extra in Godfather Two. What? He's a passerby. Really Isn't it crazy. <laughs> and Godfather Two of all things. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it was awesome. like you know ten, twelve years earlier or something like that. Shokosugi had a really interesting career. I guess he was like the 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 he was the. Menachem Golan, like when his he had his guys, you mm-hmm. know, and his gals. He had his his crew, Stable. his repertory, mm-hmm. and he loved working with the same people over and over. Not too unlike Ben, your collaborators, who always their stable of actors are always sure. coming in here and there. And sure. you know, um, that being said, we do need some more uh, sex scenes with Scott Poitras pouring feet juice on. <laughs> God, yes, on AJ, AJ Bowen. Bowen's body. <laughs> Please. I've probably actually seen something like that happen. Yeah. In, like, no cameras were around, thank God. But 
Oh my god. Um, but Shokasugi has a, a really great scene um, in that movie too, where he shows up at a hospital. <laughs> And convinces two um, hospital orderlies who are ex- extraordinarily beefy um, to come over to him. No, those are the guys in, that are in the morgue. Okay, he does the double noggin. That's right. Yeah, oh, that's he, right. Yeah, he, but it's just like but they look like bodybuilders. They look like weightlifter. Like, are they bad guys? Like, what's their deal? You know, like why are they so beefy? They're stuntmen. That's why. Yeah. But like come, he does this come here and he just mm-hmm. knocks their heads together and gives this look of like, eh, eh, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I did that. Next. He just this look like, you didn't know I was going to do yeah. that, but I did <laughs> Surprise. Ninja. <laughs> you got ninja. <laughs> you got ninja. <laughs> oh, my God. What else, Ben? What else did you notice about this one? Well, um... I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's. I think it has interesting parallels and uh, connections to the third film we're going to discuss, which came out the same year. I imagine they were probably both shot back to back, or the year before. They were probably shot very close to the same time, and I think I have <clears throat> small bits of evidence. To support that theory. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, maybe we should get into that that third movie. But do you have any other? Do you have any closing thoughts? I mean, One Eyed Ninja versus Zombie Ninja, because only a ninja can destroy a ninja. <laughs> Checkmate. <laughs> you know, something that I noticed that I never knew about this movie before when I was watching the credits is is that there's a credit for Diamanda Galas in the movie saying that she did vocalizations, which of course, I mean, the woman's got like a four fucking octave range and everything. And huh. she did all the vocalizations for Bram Stoker's Dracula and really? I mean, tons of other stuff. And I mean, she's a recording artist as well. Huh. If you haven't heard Plague Mass, it's crazy. So I she was like, she's the, because there's a, there's this whole thing of the demonic, the, ha, 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 there's all these like yeah. sound design stuff of like whispers and voices and so that might be and it. which is actually Maybe kind of this. unnerving. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe it was. I mean, she's got a frightening voice, man. I mean, it was kind of, her, her her demonic laughter, or who, if that was her, yeah, that like pervades the entire last act of the movie. The, well, that's the. I think that's the scene, right, where Lucinda Dickey is hearing the laughing so much that she has to dance the laugh out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, yeah. it comes up, it pops up a few times. There's at least three scenes with just like cacophonous, whispery possession <laughs> sound design stuff. Yeah, I really wish they had leaned a little more into the supernatural. Into the supernatural. I mean, it's uh, it's it's there. It's out of all of those ninja movies, it's definitely the the <laughs> spookiest. <laughs> Of all of them, I don't know. Aside from the fact that most of it's in broad daylight. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> There's nothing scarier than broad daylight uh, in a ninja movie. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of... I wish that there was a... My gripe with the movie, I'm always like, I wish there was more blood. I wish there were some... You know, there was more exploitation elements in the film. Um, as it is, though... <laughs> it does hit every note that I want it to hit. It does yeah. very successfully. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I love Ninja Three. Oh my god, I love it. I think across the board we can all agree on that. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a, it was a real trip having an excuse to rewatch it after all these years. Okay, does it hold up for you? 
Well, uh, that's a complicated question. I, <laughs> I realized I remembered far less than I thought, but I did remember I was like, something happens on a golf course. And then sure enough, as soon as I hit play, I was like, there it is. By the way, There's he the crushes not only a golf ball, but a billiard ball. That is correct. Uh, a yeah. nine ball, I believe it is. But uh, she, as, he as her. As so, her. And it is her. It's her doing it's her. it. She crushes it. An actual pool ball with her bare hands. No and stunts, I'm no pretty chance. sure she kills that guy by kicking him out of a window. Yes. Yes. I, I think he just hits the ground out of the one story fall. You know, yep. the, he falls four <laughs> feet and dies. Yep. Um, Kicked him at just the right angle. So Because yeah. it's a ninja kick. Yeah. I also love, we mentioned, we, we, we briefly mentioned that the, the one cop, um, the real, the 70s porn star cop who has the two whores, <laughs> um, they go into a hot tub and Lucinda Dickey shows up at the hot tub. Yeah, totally Kunoichi style. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that the, there's, it's the guy and the, the two whores <laughs> and they're in the hot tub and Lucinda Dickey Get shows here, up bitch. and they're like, suddenly they're jealous. <laughs> like yeah. they're, it's, yeah. they're cool with each other, but it's this third one that is the yeah. no go for them. They're like, who's this bitch? Fuck do you want? That's <laughs> what's going well, on, lady? Why does she just surreptitiously go through and you know she poisons him with the ring, you know, which is you know, which mm-hmm. as a kid that freaked me out more than anything else. Yeah. I was like, oh god, that's gotta hurt. And meanwhile, they were going, what and is then she she's doing? Like, Let to me him. just go ahead and strangle and you know <laughs> slash this other girl. Like you know, I'm gonna do this very kind of like muted assassination type of attempt here, but I'm just gonna brutally murder the other two people in the room <laughs> the as well. Two, it's like two why innocent don't you just women save yourself some just time and just. Hack them all to death. Come well, on. he is an evil ninja that's possessed her, so maybe, I don't know. It's, it's all for style points, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Great Love choice, it. Ben. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys, that brings us to my choice. And my choice is the oft-punchlined Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo. Party people in the place to be. This is what you've all been waiting to see. Electric Boogaloo, the ultimate show. We tell you ozone and turbo. Electric Boogaloo is break dance too. Yes, ooh. Hi. Electric Boogaloo's action dance, the best you'll get. If you like break dance when you ain't seen nothing yet. I'll finish you, your friends, and your whole damn neighborhood. This time there is an enemy, so they must unite. Because to say what you believe in, sometimes you must fight. You lost your edge. Fine. Electric Boogaloo's the greatest, nothing can compete. And once you've seen this movie, you'll believe in the beast. Another good one from Canon. <laughs> Boogaloo. <laughs> Boogaloo well, shrimp. The year is 1984. <laughs> it is the same year as Ninja 3, The Domination. And uh, it is the same director, Sam Furstenberg. Um, and it also stars the same lead, Lucinda Dickey. Um, but we also have uh, uh, Adolfo Shabadou Quinones and Michael Boogaloo Shrimp. 
Chambers, uh, <laughs> reprising their roles from the hit film Breakin. And also Lucinda Dickey is in the first Breakin. Yes. And uh, and then a bunch of other people that whatever. Uh, here's the IMDb synopsis. <laughs> A developer tries to bulldoze a community recreation center. The local breakdancers try to stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah. It's like, how many times can you use that trope? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll find out, but there's a lot of of times in that trope. Breakin' 2 was rushed into production because Breakin', the first Breakin' was a huge hit for canon and it wasn't even a full year before nine this movie. months yeah. wow. not between production dates between release it, yeah. dates <laughs> wow no kidding yeah. which is pretty insane to think about how quickly that movie was rushed into production that said it if the first break-in was like an earnest attempt at chronicling a new trend on the street uh, Breakin' Two is like a surrealist, uh, <laughs> maybe much, maybe artistic representation of what you could do with with that concept, and a lot of spray paint, a lot of day glow. Uh, Breakin' Two is insane in all the best ways. Uh, to to me, in all the best ways, it it's you know it's interesting because it created um. It's oh my god! There's a phrase for this. For this, uh, uh, you know, often electric boogaloo is used to represent a lot of different. Um, oh my god! What's Goofball the lingu- sequels, man? I mean, if you like, there's going to be some sort of like unnecessary sequel, then somebody's going to say like electric boogaloo, electric boogaloo and it's yeah. like the mm-hmm. rhyme, I guess, that comes down. And it's almost like people have stopped to even remember what the movie w- ever was. You know, like. The movie may well have not existed if only for the fact that it brought that title to the world, to the lexicon of, you know, of language. What's crazy is I'm still not 100% sure what the electric boogaloo is. I, is it this move? Do you guys know? Is it that move <laughs> where, like, dudes, like, shake violently? There's a, there's a lot of violent shaking dude <laughs> dance there. I, that's a like lot. recurring action in the film. It happens a lot. Often, in some ways, uh, beneficial to corpses. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that in a second. Uh, I just want to talk about some of the my favorite things about this movie, why it's so great to me. Um, first things first, we get a walk down the avenue um where <laughs> the main characters uh have a dance sequence uh by, by the way i counted i counted uh how many dance montages are in this film oh i'm glad you did because i'm very curious 15 i believe it and i, I may have missed one or well, two it's, i mean it's a musical the structure for this movie is completely like an old busby berkeley musical and instead of like having a full on you know, song that's there, they're just going to have a dance break. Yeah. Cl- closer to a Fred Astaire musical. Yeah. Well, I mean, quite literally they, they, at they, one they, point. They, they play, yeah, they, 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 they pay homage to, to that. But. but we start off with a musical number where they walk down an avenue uh, to a song, and it it's so infectious that it gets every city worker in the neighborhood to start dancing. Here's who starts dancing. A mailman. Uh, telephone pole dude. 
There you go. We get some recurring theme. (laughs) The same director has put in the opening scene another (laughs) telephone repair person. That's Sam's thing. It is. It is. Maybe his brother is a a telephone pole repairman. That has to be an homage to someone. (laughs) It was his first job. (laughs) His first job. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, So we got mailman. We got telephone pole dude. Uh, Gardeners start dancing. Uh, a whole cadre of street vendors just drop their street corn and start dancing. Uh, um, electricians, uh, a woman parking ticket attendant in the just, middle of issuing maid. a ticket. Uh, yes, um, <laughs> yeah. The meter maid just drops. Well, no, she writes the ticket co- to uh. completion, <laughs> and then begins to pop and lock. Um, old blue hairs. A bunch of old people start dancing. A bunch of picnickers. Drop their food and start dancing all over the street ants. And then, of course, a Latin jazz band, <laughs> last but not least, joins in on the infectious fun. Um, and that's in the first two minutes of the movie. Interesting thing about that sequence, it is the least breakdancing type song in the entire movie. <laughs> yes. For a movie all about breakdancing, they ain't nothing urban or breakdancing about that song. I, I'm trying to remember what the song is. It's more, it's just like a pure pop song. It's a pure like late 70s, right on the cusp of 80s. It's like, it hasn't even started to get. It's, oh, it's dirty work. <laughs> dirty work. But someone has got to do it. It is. It's basically that. Um, and Ben, I expect to hear a cover of the song from uh, Break Into on your next album. In the works. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, what else do I love about this movie? Uh, oh, there's a um, there's a mime who's named Magician. Oh, yes. Magician. Oh, there's a, there's a breakdancing mime tour guide <laughs> tour when they show guide. up at he, the community center. Yeah, so the community, who, he literally shows everyone around, in quotes, by just pointing into an open door where everyone obviously is already gathered, proving once again... That mimes are just completely useless. <laughs> um, I don't know that it even matters what the plot is. The, just like I said, it's the the crew from Breakin deciding to fight back against these evil developers. Well, it's a fucking black exploitation plot. You know, it's like yes. the man comes in and tries to take away something from the urban community, mm-hmm. and they all get together and because they are a community and that they all work together. They're able to defeat the man. And the man is an evil land developer whose first scene is him demanding. You literally using the phrase, I want, I want that garden, that community center down. I want to build my new mall in that community center. I want. That's literally all he says in the entire film. Well, that and I don't care about these kids. Go ahead and move those bulldozers right over them. Oh, boy. At the end. Oh, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay, so evil land developers great. There's pop and lock everywhere you look. Well, there's an evil gang called the Electros, and I don't know if you guys know this, but um, I'm uh, this is a this is a for me a life mantra. I mean, I say this every time I practice yoga. Um, it's Electros rule the dance floor now, sucker. <laughs> <laughs> In case you guys weren't aware. That is a fact. Like early David Mamet script. <laughs> it's David Mamet. Yeah, yeah. Electros rule. <laughs> Electros rule the dance that floor is, now. Cop that is sucker. dramatic poetry right there. Yeah, I is, forgot. I've forgotten that there's like a whole dance gangs subplot, which is it's like there's, there's this thread of like 
um, you know, urban 1980s West Side Story is is like flirting with yeah, that. Yeah, it is. It's Romeo and Juliet. But yep. that really goes nowhere. I no. mean, literally up until the last possible moment, the leader of the Electros is all for bulldozing. Literally, until that last second, he's like, come on, bring the bulldozers in, until he decides to, well, oh, I don't want to spoil too much here. Um, <laughs> we get a, uh, well, we get a car wash montage, of course, uh, mm-hmm. to a song called Money. <laughs> they just say the word money over and over. Um, Which I love that part because it's like, at that point, they realize they have to raise 200 grand in 30 days. <laughs> so the first thing they decide to do is... Uh, you wash. see a, a car wash, a lemonade stand, and a guy blowing up balloon animals. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're disappointed they, uh, that they raised $7,000, which is a, a miracle unto itself. $7,000 from a fucking mime. God, it's incredible. Um, after the car wash, of course, we have a street chase uh, with the gangs that leads to a dance-off. Um, gang war dance-off uh, between... The Electros and I don't know what the other guys are Do called. We ever but know our our guys as gangs? I don't know. The, the break the the the, break the miracle dancers. Dancers. the miracle workers the miracle, the miracle dancers, dancers yeah. I think <laughs> miracle or, yeah workers. miracle workers. Um, and they have a uh, they have a really bizarre dance off. Um, the it ends in a literal. I I can't. I think it's the song like the lyrics of the song. The last line of the song goes tko and everybody (laughs) admits defeat and i couldn't help but kind of go well isn't dancing like super subjective how would there be a technical knockout (laughs) just watching you guys pop and lock with garbage cans and under a bridge (laughs) (laughs) they they literally are like well i guess you won all right this is not the end of his We'll see us again. <laughs> uh, immediately after that, uh, we have gratuitous child shoving. I don't know if you guys noticed the, the dude shoving a child, which yeah. is pretty hilarious. And then Joe Asparagus shows up. Who's that? He's the guy from uh, The Three Amigos, um, who's seeing uh-huh. the bartender from Three Amigos. Oh. He's kind of like beer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, yeah. My little buttercup. That guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. He's like, he randomly shows up to tell um, Boogaloo Shrimp that the chick is into him. Uh-huh. As if you didn't know. Right. Um, <laughs> well, she doesn't speak English. No, and she she's clearly dubbed. <laughs> and I heard that it's she's dubbed because her voice was <laughs> so weak. They tried to do that. She, uh, they tried to do her in English and then they tried in Spanish. She keeps saying just... por favor over and over in her big scene. Look, we're... We're talking all over this movie, but I I, I don't know that it. <laughs> really well, this movie matters. is kind of all over the place as well. Yeah. I mean, you're like we haven't even brought up Ice T yet. There's a great moment where um, Ozone and Turbo, the two leads, Ozone and Turbo, who at one point a woman says, "Oh, those are very original names." <laughs> well, uh, thank you. <laughs> um, do a step by step instructional um, on how to get it on with a girl. It's a it's a two phase <laughs> process, and I was totally taking notes, okay. you know, back in 1985. I, I took notes too. Phase one is got to get the girl interested. Phase two is the old tactical maneuver, <laughs> and it's explained uh, by way of a doll tango. 
And the doll tango is where this movie gets really weird. But that's when the surreal editing kicks in. That's when the surreal editing kicks in, which is the kind of thing where I can see where that worked on paper. Yeah. I'm sure they were like, oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> because I guess if you describe the scene, it's like as as they're doing a tango with the doll, they're cross-cutting with them dancing with each of the three main female characters in the film. Very bizarre. But <laughs> it gets to a point where they begin to fight over the doll. They tear the doll in half. And then just start dancing with each other. Uh, (laughs) And that's how the scene ends. (laughs) It's so good. It's such a great moment. That leads us into uh, one of my favorite tropes in movies of all time. Uh, A dinner table scene? Mm -hmm. Nothing really truly defines a film for me except for dinner table scenes. Like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre has one of the best dinner table scenes of all time. Um, you know, where it's just like absolute chaos and insanity. Um, more recently, Hereditary has an excellent dinner table scene where Tony Clit freaks out on on her family. Yes, yes, it's such a great moment. And yeah. um, Breaking Two, Electric Boogaloo, has <laughs> a scene where um everybody is eating ch- what is said to be chicken cordon bleu. But is it? Has squid. It in was it. fucking bouillabaisse, yeah. is what it was. No, they say. Well, it's... I know they say that, but like what they were because it's a soup. They're pouring it's it in soup. there. And he pulls the. T- it's it's bouillabaisse. He pulls a squid from it <laughs> and feeds it to a to cat. The cat. I, I like that cat. <laughs> <laughs> he motions to the cat. The cat comes over and he feeds it the thing. <laughs> and the scene ends with. A gratuitous dinner roll dance move where oh, they yeah. uh, they just said they're like, we're out of here. Don't talk down to us. We can take care of ourselves, old white man. We don't need your bullshit. And thank you, white lady, for dinner. They, they are very polite. <laughs> yes. They polite. don't have a problem with the family. They have a problem with the dude. They thank the old woman um, for the thing. And then they both do synchronized a synchronized roll dinner grab. roll grab, pop, lock, grab, twist, mm-hmm. walk out, and then a curtsy. Uh-huh. Uh, it's incredible, and yeah. it's a hell of a way. Now, from here on out, I'm going to leave every gather, every family gathering dinner with that. <laughs> yeah. No, okay. I was going to say, does that work with a crescent roll? Of course okay. it does. Just, that's all it's a I different need to finishing know. move, but yeah. it's the same principle. Yeah. <laughs> but did you guys clock the the guy? He's, he first shows up, I think, in the club, and then he's there at the end. It's the guy Wearing uh, the the mask, oh, is that already on your list? <laughs> what he? The, it's like a it's like a bald yeah. It's evil baby. Jamie walks in. She goes, "What the fuck is that?" I said, "Yeah, he was in the club. It's the guy from the club." That's and then literally. At the end, he's like, hey, "Watch out! Note. He's on the scaffolding." <laughs> <laughs> he's got like blood on the head of the, two shots of that? him. One in a yes. club having a seizure, and then another one. Yeah, where he's hanging off a scaffolding of the building I don't at the end. Understand? What is that? Is that what like, is who that? Was that? And you know, everybody's dying of sweat in that end scene. You can see everybody's like drenched. Lucinda Dickey is sunburnt. <laughs> you know, like yeah. they spent way too long on that that one day shooting, mm-hmm. and somebody was like. I'm putting on a fucking Tor Johnson mask <laughs> that's got to be, you know, three quarters of an inch thick. Um, yeah, that is my next note. So Pop and Lock Tor Johnson shows up to fucking terrify everybody. <laughs> but actually, before that, we have 
the wildest. Well, oh, not no, it's not. It's not the weirdest scene in the movie. Turbo has a a fantasy that he just starts dancing in oh, the shack yeah, that it's they the whole Fred share Astaire and routine. climbs the climbs the the walls That's and the right. ceiling which they got a they borrowed that room because they were filming Nightmare on Elm Street <laughs> at the same time and of course the rotating room that they used for that they allowed them they cut him a deal i think they put a freddy glove which i did not see i didn't see it either i heard that but but there's a freddy glove somewhere in breaking two that they did kind of as a shout out to west craven and new line for allowing them to use that rotating set so they could film that scene and it's it's like it's actually to me it's the the peak artistic moment of the film because it's very clear that somebody and i I believe it was menachem gollin is the one who saw the Fred Astaire film. And what movie? Is it That's Entertainment? Is that the movie? No, that... That's Entertainment's a omnibus. Oh, that's right. It's a collection scenes. of films. Yeah. What is the movie that Fred Astaire dances on the ceiling? Um, oh, my God. What a dipshit I am. Anyway, that it's very clearly an homage to that. And he's like, we have to put that in my movie. And it's kind of a great moment uh, in the movie. But it's, again, it's surreal, like the editing sequence in the shack. There's something about that shack. Mm-hmm. But... It's surreal, but then it becomes literal because then the girl, the the love interest, walks into the room and looks up. Yeah, <laughs> he's right. a- on the fucking ceiling, <laughs> and she's like, "Whoa!" She's impressed by it, and he comes down and they kiss. And I, you know, what's going on at that point? Just like Ninja Three, it's romantic. Well, the acid Come has on. kicked in That's at this fine, point, dude. Mm-hmm. I want to say this about Lucinda Dickey. Uh, when she has to go up against, is it Rhonda? I don't oh, know. Yeah. Crazy, you know, yeah. I want you to stay away from him! Who has a yeah. great scene where she can't quite get through her lines. <laughs> yes, yes. That one's, that one's very specific. Oh, honey. Okay, but after that, Lucinda Dickey is so impressive to me. We haven't quite sung her praises enough right. tonight, but, like, she looks like someone who has thrown down more than a few times for real the way she like handles physical uh confrontation in both ninja three and break in two is as if she has been shoved around a lot in real life she or just looks... briefly possessed by a ninja <laughs> maybe that's, <laughs> what that's why is. i'm curious which was shot first because uh, there's I a time where like... i would have known that answer well, i feel like i feel like her hair is very that's long. That's the giveaway. Yeah, that's the in Ninja Three. Ninja Three, and it's like Princess Diana haircut, very short in Breaking Two. I think it went back going, to back. Yeah, gotta be in that order. Yeah, I mean, she was really that canon film star, wasn't she? She was mm-hmm. just like the, that. What a year for her that must have been because she was in Breaking and then uh, uh, Ninja Three, Breaking Two, just like all within nine months to a year mm-hmm. of each other. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. She's got to be proud. I, like, as much as these movies are easy to laugh at, there's real work going on, you yeah. know? And she's working her ass off, and she's, she's a, co- oh, a she's wonderful she dancer. She moves. She's oh, yeah, yeah, a hell sure. of a dancer. And, 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 yeah. and physically, she's great. I mean, in, in several ways. But, I mean, like, her physicality is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Okay. And she fully commits to everything she totally that she does. She totally does. She does the best job that she could possibly do, and, and it's it's good. Um, we Moving on a little bit here, we got the lunchbox theft that leads to tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing about that. He's running for his life I mean, with that lunchbox. He's being an asshole. Like, ass. He's stealing some of his lunchbox and then <laughs> runs. Some guy is running so hard his shirt rips open. <laughs> and then he just falls down the stairs and lets that out the one. most pitiful. <laughs> yeah. With that um, little bit of blood just with right blood on his blood forehead. On his forehead. Um, that, again, I'm not and quite sure if this is like literal or not, but a magical kiss seems to wake him from his mm. lunchbox coma. That's true. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is it a dream? She's hiding in a closet. The girl's <laughs> hiding in the closet. Well, and then the whole bit, too, where Shabadoo and, uh, and Lucinda Dickey come out, and they're playing with the stethoscopes and everything, trying to kind of yeah. get him out of the hospital. Is it a dream? He has the stethoscope on his foot. Yeah. <laughs> just wrapped in a cast. You know where the pulse is. <laughs> yeah. That's where you can tell the director didn't have any direction. He's just no, like, just that do That hospital the thing, they're like, we got another dance, I don't know, dance around in the hospital. Well, this does lead us to probably the most bizarre sequence in the film. I, the hospital dance sequence, it seems to defy the very like world of storytelling that it exists in. It's, it's like the dancing on the ceiling scene. It becomes hyper surreal. And you're like, I, everything else is so, mm, quote unquote, realistic. And this is like bizarre. You have sexy nurses, one of whom, by the way, is Mimi Kincaid who is most famous for playing Angela in the Night of the Demons movies. She's the woman that gets possessed by Mm -hmm. a demon, does very sexy dances in all of those Night of the Demons movies. Anyway, she plays a sexy nurse along with three others that um, in their magical sexy dancing, they heal crippled patients. (laughs) Um, Then some ER doctors um, are having a very serious open heart surgery of some sort the the patient flatlines and they go well we call it the sexy nurses show up in a window they cause the doctors to start i guess doing the electric boogaloo <laughs> which in turn brings the corpse back to life duh and then a bunch of pregnant women come out of the maternity <laughs> ward and start dancing and then, of course, the uh, the obese nurse um, who is not sure she wants to have any of it, and she's staring at brawless Lucinda Dickey over and over until she finally goes, "Fuck it," <laughs> and she really gets into the into it. It's a very bizarre scene uh, that does a hard cut to a shirtless pizza party, <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, we're like Ninja Three style. We're just like mm-hmm. each scene starts to build. On top of it, it's like eating a mildly spicy food and then like chicken wing, and then you have a second one and a third one, and it becomes like cumulatively more spicy. Good analogy, yeah. That's this movie becomes cumulatively more insane um, as it goes on. Uh, getting to the end here, we have a bulldozer dance off. Um, the bulldozers show up to destroy the uh, miracle center, and and it's. When- it, oh, so go ahead. No, you go ahead, Ben. No, what? Well, I just the, the, my, one of my favorite parts is that Turbo escapes <laughs> the hospital and defeats the bulldozers by throwing empty Pizza Hut boxes at the driver. <laughs> That's ex- 
Dude, it's like you have my notes in front of you. That's exactly what he throws. <laughs> Come on, amazing. let's go. One empty pizza box. And they're like, fuck it. But it, before you that. You gotta go through me. There's a great improv scene with the the actor, the, the villain with the white hair, who I'm sure has been in several canon films it as a villain. It has quite impressive dentures, man. Those Ooh, dentures were a lot of teeth fucking, on that guy. Yeah. Those are some chompers. Damn. He. Uh, has this great scene with the the bulldozer operator who is obviously a real bo- bulldozer mm-hmm. operator, not an actor. Oh, yeah. Where it's improvised where he's like, you will go through them. And the guy, for want of where else to go with the scene, goes, I'm not going to kill a kid. That's his improv. Mm-hmm. He goes, I'm not going to kill a kid. And the guy says, you will do what I tell you. And the guy goes, where do we go from here in the scene? <laughs> Like <laughs> you can just see it register. He's pretty much gonna peeked out there <laughs> the whole scene, so they, guys. Yeah. This is yeah, we're, we're starting to clip now. So, so they yeah. cut the scene anyway. That ends the 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 thing, and then we go into, of course, um, oh, the the final dance sequence where Ice T shows up, drops literally one verse, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then leaves. Um, they. They've, no, you see him a couple more times in the audience. They do some nice close-ups on him. He has one. Yeah, he dance. does. Yeah, that's true. He does. He he was there for Twice. an hour. Um, the final dance sequence where they raise the remaining, you know, what hundred thousand dollars or so, uh, has in addition to the miracle dancers, which is Lucinda Dickey and her crew, uh, Boogaloo Shrimp and um, um, Ozone, Ozone. Ozone. <laughs> uh, we have Kid Thriller. Mm-hmm. We have a a, a dude with a, I don't know how is this a chain dancer? <laughs> it's He's a, a martial artist. Okay, well, it's a guy with a chain that he spins around and lays on his back like a corpse. That's total wushu. Right uh, okay, there. spins it on top and then jumps up and spins it underneath. Interesting. Uh, we have a break dancing duck. Uh, then it, there's uh, it, the miracle dancer show up again. Chicken? Is it a duck or a chicken? I don't know. I couldn't tell. I was, it's the guy in a suit. A, Have you ever seen a yellow of... chicken? Sure. Yeah, I feel like I've seen a yellow duck, but he does have like a... He got a chicken-y sort of... Yeah, anyway. yeah. yeah that guy's, that guy's uh, going. Where... Okay, so he breakdances. Tor Johnson shows up again. <laughs> again. <laughs> and then the reformed Electros show up to join in after literally 20 seconds before saying, bulldoze the kid. Crush him, kill him. Then they're like, you know what? Fuck it. We all join forces. Um, they dance. They win the two hundred thousand uh, dollars. Lucinda Dickey and her well, his parents. Dad writes the check. Writes the check. Yeah. Okay, blah blah blah. Whatever. Look, see the movie. Um, credits roll against a, bla- a blue screen, and they do like a, a medley of songs. And then uh, this is the one thing I noticed: fifteen editors. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Damn, fifteen. <laughs> editors on that film um they were probably working them until they drop all right bring in another one oh my god yeah they had had them going simultaneously on different sections or dance sequences because they were trying to this is the only way because watching that movie i'm just like could you imagine what a night it it is not it is so complex yeah all the shots and footage well, they got. Yeah, all the dance numbers. I mean, like, mm-hmm. Shabadoo did one hell of a job because the choreography is tight. Yeah. And yeah, I got to yeah, 
tight, tight, tight. Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> and can we give, give a moment too? Because I mean, we lost him not even a year ago. Yeah, that's very true. Rest in peace. He died December of last year. You're talking about Adolfo really? Quinones, right? Yes. Yeah, that's a yeah. Rest in peace, buddy. Um, and I, I actually I feel like didn't Michael Chambers pass away too? No, that... I think he's still. Alive. Okay, sorry, Mike. <laughs> um. Anyway, break into Electric Boogaloo uh, is kind of like a um, another fever dream of Dayglo, a Dayglo fever dream that you don't really think should exist, but it actually does. Wonderful, stupid movie. And there's a drinking game we could probably create to this. So anytime <sighs> oh, somebody says, terrible. let me tell you something... Or says whack. <laughs> or whack. Oh my god, there's a great the great scene where they the, they're at the uh the the court the, hearing. Yes. And the, the town hall meet or the, the town hall meeting, meeting. Yeah. and there's a character throughout the film that you're like, is his allegiance, is he the bad guy, his assistant or what? But oh, the dude with the glasses. The dude with the he's round the, glasses the city, he's city great. planner guy, yeah. Who's great who has a scene in that scene, some kid goes, um he's a poor man. Yeah, and yeah, the, you guys it, are whack. And he turns around. He's like, "Oh, what is that? Uh, whack? We're whack. What? Who's whack? <laughs> Who's whack? <laughs> he's a poor man's Paul Bartel. Yes, he is, and he's on the level like Paul Bartel is. Anyway, I love that guy. I'm sure he did a lot of uh, stuff for Canon too. So, Breaking Two, Electric Boogaloo, excellent film. All right, we're nearing the end here, guys. I just wanted to quickly, not uh, maybe not so quickly, but I wanted to. Uh, play a quick little game and then we'll make our decisions and then we'll wrap it up but this game um all right canon films reached an apex uh at one point in 1986 uh our year of delta force that is in the bible 43 films in one year damn whoa okay ben show off with the five films Wow. Plus, okay, 43. Yeah, that ain't, that ain't shit. <laughs> Slacking, man. <laughs> you gotta get to work. Yeah. Well, um, the 80s do. Think about the, the amount of cocaine that's fueling those That's right. That, it, it was yeah. worked well. into the budget then, so things were a little different. Um, Boy, this year sure blew by. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the thing is about canon is they uh, – I think their, their whole canon – neighbor is somewhere in the neighborhood of over 400 plus films they didn't just produce films they also distributed films but it was a mishmash of genres they didn't really specialize in one type of genre they kind of could do a little bit of everything and um that is kind of their magic that was the canon magic as it were i often wonder what movies didn't get made <laughs> because very often it feels as if menachem Gollum just went i've got an idea for a film and he just came up with an image and people went got it that's we got it that's american ninja okay cool so the game we're gonna play tonight it's called canon or fodder and in it, I'm going to read the synopsis of a movie. Some of them are actual films made by canon, and some of them are just made up by me. Oh, that's and good. yeah, it's up to you guys um, and you listening to guess which one is canon and which one is fodder. And as usual, the winner uh, gets $1 million. <laughs> I love okay. getting one million dollars. Yeah, you will have exactly one million dollars. And um, so here we go. We're gonna we're just gonna jump right into it. Okay, cannon or fodder? The first form we had. Well, we talked about the Delta Force, but we did not talk about 
Zebra Force. A group of Vietnam vets, tired of the day-to-day neighborhood malignancy caused by a particularly nasty branch of the mafia, decide to take on the mob on their own terms by posing as drug dealers in blackface. (laughs) Is that canon? (laughs) Or is that fodder? Uh, Ben, (laughs) you go ahead and go first. I'm hoping fodder. Okay. I'm going to say fodder. Okay. That is actually a canon film. Zebra Force is a real movie. Yes. Way. (laughs) Okay. Um... So we started off (laughs) with something insane. They keep getting insaner from here. Here we go. Street Blazer. An up-and-coming female reporter goes undercover as a scar-faced, bloodthirsty pimp to get the scoop on the recent disappearance of local prostitutes, one of whom is her next-door neighbor and best friend. Cannon or fodder, Ben? Cannon. Chris? I'm going to say fodder. That is made up by me. Fodder. Okay. Beast Vikings. (laughs) (laughs) An evil wizard. (laughs) Sorry. Let me get it together. fucking face, man. (laughs) Let me get it together. An evil wizard conjures a horde of vicious Viking beasts to terrorize the kingdom that banished him. Two of the barbaric Vikings begin to question their positions and fight back with the help of an eccentric beggar and a glowing sheepskin. (laughs) Then, cannon or fodder? Fodder? Okay. I'm going to say cannon. It is fodder. (sighs) All right, you guys are tied. All right. (laughs) This is a tough one. It's All right. just like, I might as well flip a coin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> point, I, the odds would probably be better. I'm not sure if I had a better time writing them or searching for them. <laughs> I, honestly, <laughs> that was really... Okay. Hell Squad. In order to rescue the son of a diplomat from evil terrorists, a group of Las Vegas showgirls undergo commando training and organize a dangerously sexy rescue mission. That sounds like an Andy Sedaris movie. (laughs) Is that canon or fodder, Ben? That sounds like something they absolutely would make. Okay. I'm canon. Canon. I'm going to agree canon, yeah. It is canon. Congratulations. Well done, guys. Okay. That was greenlit two lines in. (laughs) (laughs) One up each nostril, and we're we're greenlit. (laughs) All right. um, Here we go. Chili Beach. A lifeguard, hmm, hoping to outsmart evil condo developers, gets a wild idea to sell fresh chili to a variety of wacky beachgoers, including a drag queen dominatrix, a horny karate instructor, (laughs) and a voluptuous farm girl. (laughs) Ben? (laughs) Just shaking your head over there. (laughs) This is tough. I'm going to go canon again. Okay, Chris? I want this movie to be canon so I, I much, just want it to be I'm going to say fodder, though. It is fodder made so up. What's that title? Uh, Chili Beach. Okay, I'm. that's sticking with me. I'm <laughs> yeah, gonna, you should option that. I'm going to straight up release a record under, like, Chili Beach. <laughs> okay. A um, couple more here. Here we go. Ninja Hunt. A ninja CIA agent must face his toughest challenge yet 
when the evil King Ninja steals a top-secret chemical formula known as DAC-10 that, when weaponized, could activate an everyday civilian's deep-seated desire to kill. I can't keep guessing canon, but I believe they would make that. (laughs) Okay, canon? You say canon. I'd say canon. It is canon! Yeah. Okay, and I hope everybody's keeping score. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, well, we had American Ninja, so uh, uh, American Cyborg. After a devastating nuclear war, the last fertile woman on Earth joins forces with a tough renegade warrior to fight a team of deadly cyborgs and save the human race from extinction. Cannon or fodder? Going fodder. Okay. Cannon. Canon. It is an actual movie, American Cyborg. I've seen Jesus. it. Jesus. You've seen it. Chris has seen it. Cheater. Okay, last one. Here we go, guys. Maximum kill. Canon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Anders and Slater, a.k.a. the Steel Brothers, are reluctantly recruited to join the Ever War after stumbling upon the secret weapon of the nefarious Blood Order, a cybernetic arm enhancer with only one setting. Maximum kill. Mm, I'm going out on top and going cannon all the way. Cannon all the way for you, okay. Cannon. Cannon all the way, guys. I made that one up. Maximum (sighs) kill is the movie I wish I could see right now. Call those guys. <laughs> Call them up. They bring them back from the one. dead. Yes. All right. So the winner is, are you guys keeping score of that? I think it was a dead tie. You both get... Dead um, heat. 500 dead heat. each or a million each? Um, I'll just go ahead and give you guys a million each. Cool. All right, guys. We talked about three movies <laughs> and a lot of other shit. There's two movies that we have to pick for our 80s canon film features. What the hell are we going to pick? Um, Chris, you go first. What... Two movies best represent the canon film Ouvoir. Well, seeing how this is the best representation of canon films and not the Sam Furstenberg, Lucinda Dickey show. Sure. I'm going to say the best representation would be Delta Force and Break Into Electric Boogaloo. Okay. So we got one for uh, Delta Force. One for breaking two. And uh, if you're listening at home, could you write that down with a pen and take notes so that we can keep this? Okay. And then send me a text and let me know. Okay. um, So I'm going to go with, hmm. All right. Well, I'm going to go with Ninja 3, The Domination, and Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo. That's the two that I want to see together as as a thing. So that's... What do we got so there? So that's a Lucinda Dickey double feature. It is yeah. a Lucinda Dickey yeah. double feature. It is. Um, which I'm fine with. So we got, that's one. Okay. All right, Ben. Well, this is, it's up to you here. Mm. Hopefully. No, <laughs> Hopefully we don't end up in another dead tie. No, we remember, we, we, we do finally, have a way finally sorted out how to do that. All right. No pressure, but all the pressure in the world. It's on you. Hmm. So on the one hand, you've got the Lucinda Dickey double feature. On the other hand, you got ninjas and commandos, ninjas and terrorists. Um, oh my God, they're all. I mean, it's all perfect. It's all. It's, it's all it's canon tough. films. Yeah, yeah. It's tough. I I uh, I think what might 
edge this out is um, the music. Well, I'm going Ninja 3, Dominate. Okay, <laughs> yes. All right. 100%. In the end, I think the, the Delta Force music edges out the break in two music in terms of my ability to stomach it <laughs> at this point in time. <laughs> like, like, I want to love the songs, the many, many tracks that break into Electric Boogaloo. Yes. Playing, but some of them do not age well. We, they we, are tough. We should and note that be- against- before we did this, by the way, uh, you and I were talking back and forth that it, you were like, listen, I, you know, I'm just... I'm not really into musicals. I was so. like, I hate musicals. And, and on this, I, there was a lot of Siri. Fast forward ninety seconds. Siri, fast forward ninety more seconds. Siri, fast forward three minutes. Yeah, there are so many long dance musical numbers to very dated sounding bootleg ass uh, hip hop or breakbeat music or what was supposed to be. Yeah. It, and 15, I think 15 yeah, dance numbers. 15, back. And I, I think what's interesting about, um, the depiction of the culture in breaking two is that that is distinct. We didn't talk about this before is, um, that's 1984 breakbeat culture in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which is a very, very different picture of it. You're and right. almost a weird caricature of what was really going on in New York city. Two different where, scenes. Absolutely, and and it completely was like, different. Yeah, and it barely existed, I think, by comparison in terms of what they're trying to sort of depict. Right. Um, and like, I kind of hate. I mean, this isn't fair, really, into the movie, but I kind of hate that. Like, in the end, for it to have that <laughs> plot point and that setup that you mentioned, the trope of like the community has that they win by like a rich white guy like gives them the money gives them the money <laughs> like that great like, white hope that comes I in you know thank you that, so much you know? white people I for do too. saving the day and it's basically just a, an apology to his daughter you know yeah. it's kind of basically why he does it yeah. and I, I you know so and when you're up against like Alan Silvestri and like um I I'd say that gives it that gives it the edge however i forgot to mention my favorite connection point between Ooh. ninja 3 the domination and break into electric boogaloo is I swear to God, the white convertible that is her car in Boogaloo is boyfriend Billy's car in Ninja Three. Oh my god, I didn't even yeah, realize that. That is the same Good car. I dude. <laughs> that is the exact same car, and they probably shot those movies back to back in like spread for like three months. Alright, now we have to speculate whose car it was. Whose car is that? Yeah. It was Lucinda's. I'm just going. I, I want to believe that. So yeah, I'm me going too. With that. Yeah. We'll call her up and ask her. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so that, it, yeah, that's our, it. Our choices are so it looks like the winner is. It's a three way tie, man. Are you fucking kidding me? No, I'm me? not kidding you, but I already went ahead and sorted it based upon our tiebreaker it's an criteria. Even dead tie? Yeah. We have a problem no, with we this don't happens every once yeah. in a while. <laughs> But based, based upon the criteria, in order to show enough showings in there, because of the run times, it's going to be Ninja 3 and Breaking 2. So we uh, will have a Lucinda Dickey, Sam Furstenberg double feature. Fantastic. <sighs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased. I would have been pleased with either outcome. That's the one thing we can take away if there's only one thing from this. It's that any two movies that we chose here tonight would be an incredible double feature 
I'll tell you what makes it what actually what gives that a little bit more is that of those three, the Break Into soundtrack has actually had a life of its own since then. Whereas mm-hmm. those other movies do not. You don't you don't routinely run into the Break Into or the uh, either of those other two films soundtracks like as a cultural like touchstone. Like you see it in the record store and it's it's true. always I, in bargain bins and I have Break In and Break Into on vinyl. Yeah. Yeah, it's part of the culture for sure. All right, well, let's let our guests decide what is going to be the showing order. Ooh, okay, for these movies. So, Ben, if you can let us know, what movie do you come for, and what movie do you stay for? Uh, you come for Ninja Three, or you? Well, I don't know. You probably think you come for Breaking Two, just because of like it's it it. I think it exists more in the cultural like you know the the zeitgeist, but. I think you put that one second because uh, if you got to make it through all that to then start the fever dream of Ninja Three, I just think you you get straight into it with the golf course. You jump right into it. You crush some golf balls. You jump on some helicopters. Yeah, you know you're you're hitting your midnight audience with that one. So you're saying break in two. I'm saying no. Really, you're I'm saying, saying start Ninja with Ninja Three. three. Oh, yeah. start with Ninja Three. I think Ninja Three just ninja right off the top. Um, go long hair because you can't do reverse in the hair you know it's just like it's gonna you know you go chronological with the hair you yes. start long okay you go so okay. we're going shooting, shooting order. order is where we're going <laughs> right here on. Yeah. and the idea then too is that the audience can pop and lock their way out of the drive-in because the car the convertible is much more featured in uh three so then you realize she dumps <laughs> Jordan hair back silverback. Yes. She takes the car. She, she probably yeah. killed him. Yeah, she probably kills him. Gets the car out of the deal. Shows up at Turbo and uh, Ozone's. And, Ozone's and place. just so you guys know, Jordan Steele. Uh, wait, Jordan. Uh, Jordan Bennett uh, went on to star as uh, Amy in Congo. <laughs> 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 her suit, her suit. Amy want comb for back hair. So just he he did all right for himself. Just so you guys know, Ben, what do you got coming up, man? Uh, so I just you know got to the end of a big year of a bunch of stuff coming out, and um, I am in pre-production on a couple things that I can't yet say, but uh, but with enough googling of associated collaborators one might be able to take a guess sure sure very, okay it'll be very exciting and um we're looking forward to it it's gonna be a big deal that's great so, that's awesome yeah. i'm excited yeah hell yeah. yeah yeah um where can people find you uh i there are uh there's a lot of stuff now on the recently totally revamped benlovit.com all kinds of stuff there um featurettes about scores to movies all the music videos we talked about lots of albums streaming lots of uh deep dive uh stuff that you can get into if you're interested and um twitter and instagram not hard to find dude thank you so much my pleasure this is so much fun this was awesome that was a blast well guys we got that's a great double feature 80s canon films it was an era it was a time i miss it this is the best way i think we can recapture it absolutely so i must say I am intrigued, Chris, by this Canon Films thing. So you're going to deal with every problem you encounter with a bazooka or breakdancing. Yep. It is so utterly ridiculous that it's brilliant. Okay, look, I 
I want to know how you're going to do this. Um, let me, okay, let me pitch you some hypotheticals and then you tell me which path to take. Sure, shoot. Okay, let me see. Um, uh, bad weather. <laughs> Breakdancing. Uh, oh, order mix up at a restaurant. Breakdancing. Okay. Bad traffic. Ooh, uh, depends. Uh, bazooka, unless we're stuck on the bridge. Then, breakdancing. Oh, okay, I think I can understand that. I can imagine. I'm imagining how that would look. A news chopper flies over the bridge to see hundreds of people exiting their vehicles, windmilling and worming and boogalooing. I see <laughs> yeah, the appeal. Yeah, right. See? Oh, oh excuse me one second. Oh, what the fuck? What are you doing? Finally dealing with those mutant rats that have been raiding the concession stand. I'm putting my foot down and an RPG up their asses. Well, I am. I am happy to see you taking control. But I do want to get back to my earlier line of questioning. Okay, here we go. What if you get like um, a parking ticket? Ticket on the windshield? Uh, definitely bazooka. But if the meter mate is still there, I'll head spin until she joins in. If not, I'll put a rocket right up her motor cart's tailpipe. You seem to like aiming for the back door. Is there any other way? Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Dead City Drive-In. Toilets unclogged! Oh, once again, I'm Brandon Windish. And I'm Chris Holcomb. And remember, at this drive-in, if the cars are rocking, it's probably a problem with the shocks. Just shoot it with a fucking bazooka, and trust me, you'll feel a whole lot better. Want to have words with the management? Email us at deadcitydrivein at gmail.com and your questions might be featured on a future episode. And hey, why not rate and review Dead City Drive-In on Apple Podcasts? It'll help us grow the show, keep the admission free, and splatter just the right amount of slime and sleaze onto our mutant-friendly drive-in screen. Under 17, not admitted without parent.